I'm just sick of all these things like, oh, look, critically praised, Oscar winning, so great. And they always, always, always suck major ass. My like, God, why am I sitting to this shit? Whereas stuff they're like, oh, this is terrible, you know, two stars on Rotten Tomatoes. These are great films. What the fuck are you talking about? I mean, they might not be works of art for the ages, but they're entertaining. They're fun to sit through. They're fun to critique. They got interesting actors in them. These things are just shit. It's like watching paint dry. Inside the gold mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Jacqueline Dissett on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Pod. Second episode of the twelfth season of Weird Seeds Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird and the wonderful world, cult film, music, television, and more, like his new guitar. Uh, <laughs> so tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seeds Inside the Gold Mine. So, uh, like I said, I am Doc Savage. With me again is Mr. Lewis Paul, the Maven of Sleaze and Virago of Vituperativeness, and whatever else we... Uh, Master of Prague. Well, there you go, Master of Prague. <laughs> Somebody who knows a hell of a lot more about Gong than I do. <laughs> Colors of Prague. Oh, the hey, I could plug my show. Uh, Colors of Prague, which is my uh, YouTube, Podbean, and Facebook channel, where I talk about progressive rock. Ooh. <laughs> there you hey, go. I got to give myself a plug now and then, right? Yeah, that's it. That reminds me when I I got Chiller coming up. And... Oh yes. So what's going on with that? <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to do? I don't think you know Cheech. No, nah, Cheech is not going to want to do it. Uh, this guy, no, nah, he he don't want to do it. Just give me some names. We'll do about three max because we haven't done it in a while. I'm like, okay. So right away he says you're booked for Creep Show reunion. Oh fuck. Creep me. Show. <laughs> I always call that thing Crap Show. I saw it in the theaters. I'm like, man, this movie sucks. And it was like, oh, it's the greatest. Oh, you see comics. I'm like, oh, please. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But, but you know, in lack of George Romero, he's going to have Christine, you know, his, That's his late wife. Oh, was she his wife? She was married to him before he Who left knows? her. <laughs> but, but I'm like, okay, I didn't say anything about that. He said, what else do you want to do? I lost the list. I'm like, how about the weird New Jersey guys? I think it's a really good idea. Because, you know, I'll be talking to those guys, and, you know, they're they got to be fun for something. You yeah. Know? They've been doing this here forever. And uh, I threw out there Kathy Moriarty. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I don't think really many people talk to her. She seems to be maybe difficult or maybe it's a perception. Yeah. And uh, the two I really wanted to do, he said, they don't really do Q&As and they may not want to do it. And that would be Adrian Barbeau and Tom Atkins, which is really surprising. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I, well, who knows? It's DVDs and stuff. But I've seen Barbeau talk. Whatever. I've seen both of them talk. But you know what? Maybe like we're here for three days to make money. You know? Yeah, that's it. So we'll see what happens, but that's coming up to you. And I will promote both these shows since I have an audience. At my <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say you know weird scenes, you know blah blah blah, and you know and and colors of Prague, and you know while while I got like a room full of like sixty people, you know I'm gonna like just promote the hell out of this. Hey, you know I do that once a year. I don't know as I told you this might be the last day, but. 
Hey, free advertising, right? Exactly. So. All right. So. All right. So, you know, time was short, so I didn't really write anything on uh, her background. All right, so Winifred Jacqueline Fraser Bissett, there's a mouthful for you, born in England back in 1944, believe it or not. Of course, she started doing movies back in the 60s, a Golden Globe nomination at one point. She was in a film, which we'll discuss later, a foreign film that won the Academy Award, the Oscar, for Best Foreign Language Film. She got another Golden Globe later on for, (laughs) of all things, a film that we just discussed in our George Siegel show. Again, we'll get to all this later. And she was in a teen sex comedy. We're going to get to that later. Um, and she was in a Frank Sinatra movie, too. The, the type. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that in our Sinatra show. We'll talk about that again today. She was actually born in Surrey, the daughter of George Maxwell Fraser Bissett, a general practitioner, I thought was a doctor, and a lawyer-turned-housewife. Okay. Usually the other way around these days. And her mother was French and English, and her father was Scotch. Apparently, the mother cycled from Paris and boarded a British troop transport to escape the Germans during World War II. She was actually in a small country village where she grew up. She's actually the godmother, I believe, of uh, of all people, Angelina Jolie. Yes, I read that too, yeah. She never married, but she had a whole bunch of long-term boyfriends. I think the only one anybody would really know would be Michael Sarazen, the actor. She said in interviews, people ask her, why are you still unmarried and you don't have any kids? It's just, you know, I couldn't in all conscience do what I do and have children. Can you imagine being the daughter of Raquel Welch? I've heard horror stories about children in Hollywood. Not much background there, but, you know, it's a little bit of something. And uh, Jackie was actually, I believe, a model first. From there, you can tell that kind of from her first couple of films, because she went right into major films. She didn't really do like the kind of direct that you usually see people coming up in doing little bit parts in really crappy films. She actually kind of went for big-name directors and highly praised films of all sorts. You know, not necessarily art house right away, but there were some of that too. But even so, her early roles were kind of just pose, look sexy, and don't open your mouth. And there were actually a couple of cases early on that were literally that. And then one later on, strangely enough, we'll get to that as well. So is there anything that you want to toss in before we get rolling? Uh, early career? No. You're, you're pretty pretty much touched upon all the interesting stuff. Yeah. So uh, 1965 was her first film, The Knack and How to Get It. Women like to be dominated. Keep your advice to yourself. Weird go-go boots bedecked supposed comedy from Richard Lester, who gave us much better if similarly proto-MTV quick-cut-obsessed films like Hard Day's Night, Juggernaut, The Oliver Reed, Three and Four Musketeers, and Superman 1 and 2. And we covered three of those in our Richard Harris and Oliver Reed shows. All those women, I'm not up to it. This one comes off more like a color-free, Beatles-bereft help populated by a cast of quirky-looking unlikables and revolving around a nebbishy young male school marm. Of all people, an unrecognizable Phantom of the Opera himself, Michael Crawford. Yeah, he was very young. Very yes, young, yeah. you will not recognize him. Pissed off because he's not much more attractive and particularly obnoxious next-door neighbor, future Pete Walker regular Ray Brooks of the Flesh and Blood show and House of Whipcord from our Friendly Pint with Norman Pete show, is always banging giggly young dolly birds. Women, not individuals, just types, surrendering if pushed. Man must dominate. The latter diatribe was so important to Lester, he punctuates it in huge typewritten subtitles that uh, dominate the bottom half of the screen as a succession of young ladies pass by on buses, bicycles, and boats. How any self-respecting female could possibly give it up for this dour, odd-looking asshole with a bad pompadour rug is beyond me, even back in the swinging 60s. Rory McBride has a Chinese girl. Slinky. Chinese. Very slinky. Very nice. Too good for you. 
Rita Tushingham, a sub-Chantal Goya with a Streisand-worthy schnoz, Shelley Duvall Popeyes, a Ruth Buzzy face and crass Eastender accent, is one of those fools who move from the sticks to swinging London without money or a plan, who winds up staying at the same boarding house, but not for a long, absurdist bit involving an old brass bed they find at the junkyard and ride around the city on, even paying a parking meter for it at one point. Then the odd-looking Tushingham is subjected to multiple gropings and sexual harassments by Brooks and an OCD-afflicted roommate obsessed with painting the entire place and its windows white. Hmm, I heard about that gay thing for guys in clean white underwear right out of the package, which we discussed in our Full Moon Dave Dakota show. She even starts spouting rape allegations, technically not true, as she fainted when Brooks came on too aggressively to her, expanding it to all three of them and acting weird like throwing Brooks's jazz records out the window, running around in nothing but a fur coat. So what's Crawford's advice to him? Get in there and rape her. She wants you to. That's what it's all about. So go in there and help her out of her little fantasy, and all will be well. Wow. And you, and, and not to interrupt, and you wonder why this has not got a Blu-ray release. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean. This is so. I have. Yeah, you know, yeah, I saw this, too. And I rewatched it for the show, and I'm like, this is so, <laughs> so, you know. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's what the fuck. I, Yo, you don't need to say because the way you introduce me, like you always do. Yeah, we're, we're not too sleazy guys. We we appreciate sexuality. Yep. And we appreciate hot, sexy women and broad spectrum cool. of sexuality and decadence. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm a decadent. You're you're pretty damn close if you aren't. <laughs> you know. We, no, we appreciate good-looking guys. We said it many times. I said it before. But um, movie like this, yo, so out of touch and so and it's reprehensible in a way. It's supposed to be a comedy. It's a nasty film. Like, the way they treat women? Fuck. Oh, God. And, oh, Donald Trump learned from this fucking movie. <laughs> I've, I've seen Golden Age, and so have you, Golden Age porn films better than this. True. Where the women are treated better. Yes. That's sadly it's yo, true. terrible. It's like, yo, come on. So what I was going to say was, wow, honestly, I have no words for this. And this was a comedy? I'll bet Broadway legend Crawford is proud of this one. <laughs> Bissett wisely is barely in this even as a cameo. You can see her literal five-second appearance effectively as a human dress dummy on YouTube and skip the rest. So, yeah, go back ahead because this is an unbelievable film. Yeah, Michael Crawford was a guy that around this time they, they tried to make – yeah, he was a stage guy. And they tried he was a comedian too. They tried to make him a thing. And <laughs> I don't know. You know, he wasn't terrible looking. He just looked like everybody else. Yeah, he was just odd looking, I guess. He wasn't as ugly as the other guy, but <laughs> – he didn't have like, and also as a as a presence, he didn't have uh, the gravitas of somebody like uh, David Hemmings or somebody right. like that at that time, or uh, Orrin Alvarez. You know, uh, very interesting. Uh, yeah. Oh, and don't forget, this is from Richard Lester, so everybody's like, oh yeah, he did the Beatles movies. He, there's a whole bunch of stuff he did later on that was decent. You know, the Superman movies, like I mentioned, the Three and Four Musketeers movies. He does a lot of decent movies. Okay, he's not like a top list, whatever, but people know him, people love him, and therefore it, this film always came up when somebody's like, oh Richard Lester, oh yeah. The knack and how to get it. What a horrible... I mean, I was just like, you know, and I don't put on the shit. I'm not, I'm not one of those assholes that goes around virtue signaling or whatever the hell. But I'm sitting there like, what the fuck am I watching? I feel bad for anybody like my wife or any other woman that would sit through this thing at any point in history, much less have gone along with guys who are like this. Holy shit. And, and, and I don't think either one of us can recommend it for a John Barry score for those Bond feats. Yes. You know, yes. Bond fanatics. They want to hear everything John Barry did. And... <laughs> you won't make it through this. No. Here's one that was so misogynistic, even we say, wow. Yeah, it's really bad. 
I mean, I think I've seen stuff like uh, forced entry, but it was not quite as bad as this in some ways. <laughs> now, that was unwatchable, and, yeah. but this is unwatchable in a different exactly way. Exactly right. So, anyway, after that atrocity, Cul-de-sac, 1966. Jackie scores big in what is quite literally her second film appearance, although, again, it's barely more than a cameo. We talked this one a few times in depth for our Donald Pleasant show and again in our Roman Polanski show. One of my all-time favorite Polanski films, this one is a highly loaded, sexually charged and decadent affair revolving around a de facto love triangle slash home invasion between a strong-willed, oversexed dom, Francois Dorliac, the much sexier sister of icy Catherine Deneuve, and weak-willed, gender-bending older husband Pleasance, who find their crumbling, drafty shoreside chateau occupied by a gangster on the lam, heart-to-heart's blacklisted Max, I don't stand that Max. All sorts of talk business takes place on the surface level, while a rather blatant homoerotic subtext that's so obvious it's practically denotation textual takes place between <laughs> the two men. In the end, the Dom walks away in total control of both men, making this somewhat of an early feminist manifesto to boot. Amazing film. There's a whole hell of a lot going on here, even more than that decidedly brief synopsis would suggest. It's one of the more decadent films outside of French or Italian erotica ever lens in the modern era. Jackie's barely in this, and given all the fireworks going off between Dorliac, Stander, and Pleasance, she's barely noticeable. Hell, I don't even believe she gets a line, despite being fairly visually prominent in a few scenes. But unlike most actors or actresses, no Z-grade popular is for her to climb her way up through, like I mentioned earlier. She started right off the bat with some big-name directors and productions, so hats off to her. This was definitely a ticket to bigger things. It's a great film. I highly recommend it. If you want to hear more about it, definitely check out those earlier shows I mentioned, The Pleasant Show and especially The Polanski Show. But, yeah, I mean, if you're looking for, for Jackie Bissett, don't bother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're, yeah, if you're pretty much looking for Jackie and, and, and that. Is she she does. A, she's window dressing again in Arriva Dirty Baby. Yeah, I didn't get to see that one. She was probably just a dancer in that one. So. Yo, yeah, yeah. She, 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 she popped up briefly in this. Yeah, we we did a Tony Curtis show, did we not? Yes, yes we, we did. did. And and uh, this is late uh, Tony. You know, was shot in England with Ken Hughes. You know, one of the guys who contributed to Casino Royale and a bunch of other Brit comedies. Ronald Harwood, the uh, well-known theater playwright, did the screenplay for this. But this is another one of those swinging Tony comedies, I guess. Comedies. He is he, he got he's he's like a gigolo. Yeah, he's in a lot of films. Yeah, too. yeah, going around marrying wealthy women, and then it's implied he's murdering them. <laughs> and then he meets a woman who has similar intentions. So in a way, it's kind of interesting. Rosanna Schifano. Oh, The Witch. Yes. Las Vegas. Great film. Yeah, and, and, a, and a couple of those Sword and Sandal films uh, is, appears in this. This cast is loaded with odd people. You know, with Lionel Jeffries, Jaja Kubor, yes, that one. <laughs> Nancy Kwan, Anna Quayle. Uh, Warren Mitchell, you would recognize faces if not names. And in between all this, Jacqueline Bissett has like uh, like a small walk-on part as like another attractive, sexy lady. Now I think, again, she dances in this, I believe. So if you're watching it for her, yeah, she probably even did this before Cul-de-Sac, where she had a bit of a more prominent role, if we could say. Yes, because she was in a couple of scenes, she just doesn't say anything. So. She fared much better in Casino Royale. Which yes, 1967's Casino Royale, not to be confused with the torture porn fest that was the Daniel Craig first which film. Which I like. The Bonsers. <laughs> and we took Bond films in three different shows, the original two and then the uh, revisiting Bond. Or... Yes, and you still didn't like that one. I love that one. So. I, know. I, I have problems with a lot of the Craig films. I did like Skyfall, surprisingly. I figured, but, yeah. Okay. 
Um, so anyway, casino round 67. Everybody and their mother appears to have been involved with this odd, if ridiculously huge budgeted spy comedy, whether on the front end, 60s stunners Barbara Boucher, Dahlia Lobby, Ursula Andress, Joanna Pettit, Alexander Bastedo, Jackie, and even an uncredited cameo from Carolyn Munro. Right. Plus everyone from David Niven, Peter Sellers, and Woody Allen, and veterans like Orson Welles, George Raff, William Holden, and Deborah Kerr to carry on regular Bernard Cribbins and perpetual exotic baddie Vladek Shabal. And, and on the back end, on, okay. and you forgot George Raff and Jean-Paul Belmondo. <laughs> oh, I did mention George oh, Raff, but yeah. no, I missed Belmondo, you're right. <laughs> he was in there. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of art house people are going to kick me for that one. Also on the back end, script writers include the likes of Terry Southern, Ben Hecht, and Catch-22's Joseph Heller. Directors, believe it or not, yes, there are many directors here, include John Huston, Val Guest, and an uncredited Richard Talmadge, the likable German stuntman from the early Douglas Fairbanks films, and star of a few must-see B-pictures of his own. This guy's fucking amazing. Do look him up. We have no less than seven of his films from Alpha here, and you quite literally won't believe your eyes. Screw Fairbanks. This guy's amazing. And a handful of comparative no-names like Ken Hughes of Slasher Night School, The Internecine Project, and Mae West Bomb Sextet. Robert Parrish, whose sole notable credit is The Destructors from our Michael Caine show, and Joe McGrath, whoever the hell he is, or the soundtrack end, Burt Bacharach, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, Dusty Springfield, and an oddly uncredited guest that we'll mention shortly. Peter Sellers, though, and that... that what was that, the Bobo or something? No, <laughs> no, no, the, the Peter Sellers television group. Uh, oh, the, the Goon Show? Yeah, the Goon Show, yes. Joe was a member of the Goon Show, and Joe worked behind the scenes and wrote and directed a lot of those. That's just how his involvement probably worked on this. And Val Guest also yes. directed something. You've got your cork still in your bottle, so I have. What are you going to do about it? Jackie shows up a literal hour and a half in this two-hour-plus mess of a Starfucker spies booth as a smoking-hot sex pot in a man's nightshirt and nothing else, with the Bond girl moniker of Giovanna Goodthighs, despite being a very blatantly British-accented dolly bird with big 60s hair. Other than that brief scene, the only reason to watch this overlong mud pie of too many cooks spoiling the broth beyond any symbols of credibility are the Joanna Pettit sequences, which features sets worthy of the Bela Lugosi Chandu serial in film. She's supposed to be the Balinese brothel-style daughter of Bond and Matahari. And German expressionism a la Fritz Lang or the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Seriously. Aesthetically, this film, and in particular all the Pettit sequences, are off the fucking charts. But if you always wanted to see David Niven drink a room full of Scotchmen under the table, and Peter Sellers, who was a real diva on set, apparently disappearing for weeks at a time of the shoot, and refusing to appear in the same gambling sequence as Orson Welles, play dress-up as both Hitler and Toulouse Trek, hey, this is your chance. Woody Allen practically cameos as an ersatz fellow Bond, essentially forecasting his own bananas by quickly ending up in front of and escaping from a third-world firing squad, and a strangely uncredited Tiny Tim drops in for a sadly soundtrack-only rendition of Casino Royale right after the Peter Sellers-Jackie Bissett scene. If that ain't him, someone cloned him, and he should have sued their asses for all their worth, because they definitely sound just like Tiny Tim. I love this movie. <laughs> when I was a kid... It looks gorgeous. When I was a kid... Yeah, it's gorgeous-looking. You know, it's gorgeous-looking. And, you know, Deborah Carr, who was God knows how old. She was matronly in this picture, you know, and, you know, star of 30s, 40s, 50s movies. Uh, she looked hot in this, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It started my Barbara Bain thing, probably with Deborah Carr. There you go. And, uh, <laughs> but well, so you like Joan Fontaine? <laughs> no, but Deborah Carr was hot. And, you know, you had Dahlia Lavi, who was barely contained. And Dahlia, <laughs> it's funny because it reminded me how many times I saw Dahlia in films and she was dubbed. And here she's speaking her original thick, weird Israeli-British accent. Yes. 
<laughs> and it's it's sounded like what the fuck, <laughs> you know? And Dahlia's like pretty much naked under this thing, and it's Woody Allen, right? He's like trying. She goes, "Darling, darling, I'm okay. You know, look, look at me, I'm darling." He goes, "No, I, you know, Woody, uh, Woody Allen. I don't want to look, you know, being all goyish." Niven, I always like David Niven, gentlemen. You know, like uh, we had. Peter Cushing was our gentleman of horror. Niven was our gentleman of actor of everything else. And he really had range when you didn't think he did. He had such range. But this is one of the few films where I, I ever saw him play this kind of part. And I remember even in The Guns of Navarone, he, he was very subservient to uh, Gregory Peck. And I was just thinking that, that all that being said, it was nice to see him in a role where he's like doing Bond. I, I like the hell out of this thing. It's eye candy. It's it makes no sense. And you know this was this happened because one of the one of the guys who played poker with Ian Fleming he bet him and it became Thunderball. And then portions of Thunderball became part of this Casino Royale. That's why this is the unofficial Bond movie as well. It's got a, you know, oddly enough, it's got a great jaunty music by Herb Alpert. And Burt Bacharach. And, and Burt Bacharach. And it had great Dusty Springfield. <laughs> very, very pop art. I like it. I mean, it's not, it's not art. It's it's pop art. If you want a really enjoyable time, yes, but look and you miss her, Jacqueline Bissett. So, 1967, Two for the Road, a depressing supposed comedy drama featuring an already tired-looking Albert Finney as an overage bohemian who, on one of dozens of road trips the film is told through, is hitching a ride on the back of a tractor like Elvis in Double Trouble, and we talk that bizarre sub-monkey's flirtation with the British invasion in our Elvis movie show, when a busload of teenage dolly birds whose hipness never extended past the singing nun is so hot for his aging boho ass that they drive into a ditch. He jumps off and winds up hitching a ride with them, presumably hooking up with extremely flirtatious chaperone Jackie Bissett, but she vanishes from the proceedings as he obviously decides to go for the young meat instead. It's hard to follow a linear timeline as scenes where he and current wife Audrey Hepburn of the bizarre geriatric old farks with beefish teenage girls epic Sabrina, which we discussed in our Humphrey Bogart show, are very much the cutesy couple interspersed with them as divorce-leaning, incessantly bickering assholes. This depressing melodrama of failed and strangely unacknowledged May-December marriages is further weighed down by an unnecessary middle eight, where the two go on vacation with Finney's ex and her prissy husband, William Daniels, best remember as Kit the Car from Knight Rider, but also the acerbic John Adams of 1776, Frankenheimer's Black Sunday, and milquetoast 70s comedy Oh God from our Donald Pleasant show. Boy, Jackie really loved to drop five-second to five-minute cameos in shit films, huh? Finney comes off as somewhat obnoxious. Hepburn, despite still being fairly young and gamin, is already showing the hangdog look of her shaky-headed prude of a mother. Aside from a few bikini shots of Audrey and Bissett's almost Charlotte Rampling-style, barely-suppressed sexuality during her all-too-brief scene, there's simply no reason for anyone to seek this one out. Was it ever proved that what's-his-name was her father? Um, Spencer Tracy. Spencer Tracy. I thought so. I always heard that they were definitely involved. If not, I don't think they got married ever. But... Uh, yeah, I always wonder about that. You know, it's, so here's the thing. You know, it's Stanley Donan, he's a strange guy. Because, you know, he began he began his career as a Hollywood choreographer. Oh, sorry, Broadway choreographer. Then he went to Hollywood. He worked on on the town. A lot of those uh, anchors away, you know, the Sinatra films we didn't talk about. Yeah, the musicals. Yeah, <laughs> musicals, the, the Gene Kelly stuff, and he had such a bizarre career because you never knew what the hell he was going to do next. You know, Singing in the Rain, he, he co-directed that with Gene Kelly. And then The Pajama Came, which was, you know, a Broadway thing, 
<clears throat> Damn Yankees. He co-directed that with George Abbott, who, who co-worked that Broadway version. Actually, I love Damn Yankees. So, you know. Wasn't uh, The Pajama Game a Rock Hudson Doris Day film? <laughs> it might be. Hold on. Oh, Doris Day and John Raitt, one of those oh. Broadway guys. Okay. But, yeah, Damn Yankees, my high school actually put that one on. I wasn't part of it. But uh, my old co-host, Matt, from At Our Level, definitely was. <laughs> oh, I love Damn Yankees. I love Damn Yankees. I, you know, but he did okay, so he did Charade. He did The Bizarre Bedazzled. He did Two for the Road. And then he did weird things like Saturn Three. Oh, I love that film. <laughs> ah, that's a strange movie. We never did a Kirk. Did we do a Kirk? I don't think we did a Kirk. Talk. No, we did not. No, I brought that up once. And then he did Blame It on Rio, which for some bizarre reason, oh, I mean, shit. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't know why. I tried rewatching that a couple years back. I'm like, wow, this movie is unbelievable. Oh, for the Mike Caine <laughs> show movie, yeah. Yes, maybe that's why. Yeah. yeah, but other than that, it's like, eh, you know. But next we go on to the Cape Town Affair, correct? Yes, I did not see that one or the Sweet Ride, so you're welcome to take them if you want. I haven't seen the Cape Town Affair in years. Uh, Might be a reason for that. <laughs> no, it's... Nobody wanted to put it back out. You know, Cape Town, South Africa. It's actually yeah. one of her leading, first leading roles. Plays uh, Jacqueline Bissett, plays Candy. Uh, South African woman who's suspected she's being trailed by government agents. Uh, actually, you know what this is? This is a remake of that, that uh, movie by Sam The one with Victor Remark about the pickpocket. I gotcha, I can't remember that title. I'm sorry, folks. But James Brolin plays the young James Brolin plays the pickpocket. Lifts a wallet from Candy's purse. Uh, Jacqueline plays Candy. Then he exits. Meanwhile, she thinks she's being pursued by people. And apparently there was... Somebody placed stolen microfilm in her purse. It's like, yeah, one of those movies. I'm going to look up, I'm going to take a, a quick detour. I'm going to look up Sam Fuller. It was a very famous picture, actually. Oh, yeah, he did a lot of uh, film noir, yes. didn't he? And this movie is like an unabashed remake, stolen probably, of Pick Up on South Street. Oh, yeah, okay. If you guys look up 1953, Pick Up on South Street, Richard Widmark, Gene Peters, Thelma Rare. It's set in New York. Oh, same character. Fuck me. Yes. <laughs> Gene Peters plays Candy. Wow. How did they get away with this? And and Richard Remark played a, a pickpocket. It actually winds up being the good guy because he's a scumbag fuck. But he steals this, this wallet, which has, you know, her purse, which has microfilm in it, which was put in there by some bad guys. And everybody's after her. It's a very good Sam Fuller film, but at the same time, they remade this movie as the Cape Town Affair and didn't acknowledge the Sam Fuller pick. <laughs> now, allegedly, somebody sued on behalf of Sam Fuller, and later prints were noted as screenplay by Sam Fuller and somebody else, but I'm not sure how true that is. I haven't seen this in a long time. I did see this. It's like, mm, I don't know. I can't recommend it or not. So, in 1968, The Detective. We talked this one in our Frank Sinatra show, but this is Frank's Paul Newman and Ford Apache The Bronx moment, where he plays a cop with a heart, sensitive to the ostensible purpose of the era, like junkies, whores, and yes, homosexuals in the pre-Stonewall era. Jackie actually filled in last minute for what was going to be a role for then-Frank-wife Mia Farrow, who managed to piss him off by overrunning on the Rosemary's Baby film shoot for Roman Polanski, who we did a show on. 
prompting an instant divorce papers and Jackie having to get that awful Mia Farrow prison slash mental patient slash nun hairdo. Hideous, even when you're as much of a looker as Jackie Bissett. Worse, she's actually the de facto beard for the true baddie of the picture, a prominent closet queer who murders his boy toy on the side for joking about, no, not outing him to the media, but just telling him to stop lying to himself and admit he's gay. Nothing worse than self-loathing types. Look at the Pulse shooter for one of far too many examples. Features Frank Foe propositioning an undercover cop come drag queen and Rudy Giuliani clone Robert Duvall. That's basically it. We talked it in the Frank Sinatra show, so I'm not going to get into it any more than that. How about you? Uh, you know, this is you know, one of those really good Frank movies. One of those really good Sinatra movies. Yeah, no, no, no shit, folks. This is... This is one of those good Sinatra movies. He was really on point. And what we didn't mention last time was like the testosterone cast. You know, you had Ralph Meeker, Jack Klugman, you know, and Jack could hold his own, you know, when, when oh, yeah. he was doing a really good Tom Atkins. I mentioned this last time. And, you know, who was who was the Faye lover? It was Tony Mizante, right? Yes. Oh, from Bird with the Crystal Plumage. <laughs> yes, Tony. And yeah, it was Tony Mizante. You know, it's very interesting there. Bullets next, which we discussed in our, our um, Steve, McQueen, Steve show. McQueen show. Yeah, and I also want to say you brought up uh, Jack Klugman being a solid performer. It's interesting. Everybody just remembers him as, you know, Oscar Madison from the TV odd couple. No, he wasn't quite on the level of Walter Matthau, another one who is mainly known for his comedies, but who actually was a really solid criminal type actor. And we talked to him, I know, at least in our Joe Don Baker show for uh, Charlie Barrick. But I also love stuff like The Laughing Policeman. He did a couple, Taking a Pelham, One, Two, Three. He had a, like a little run of like crime movies where he was basically you know a cop or detective under you know dealing with some I don't want to call him neo noir but it was definitely some heavy shit and there were good films. Okay. Klugman was not as strong but he definitely did some solid work. Believe it or not, so worth checking into if you're interested. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of Klugman, you know, so Henry Silver just passed. Yes. Uh, and Klugman was in his terrific black and white French noir crime drama called Hill Mafia. Yes. With Eddie Constantine, who we did a With show on. With Eddie Constantine. And it is a terrific movie. The performance that Jack Klugman gives in that picture is amazing. No shit. Really. Really. He's, he's the guy that's the lead in that, actually. I still got to see that one. Oh, yeah. It's good. It's good. So, 1968 is Bullet. She actually got the, quote, Laurel Award for Female New Face. She took second place. We talked this one in our Steve McQueen show, like you mentioned. Steve is a San Francisco cop who runs afoul of the mob in the course of a botched witness protection operation. It's mainly famed for its bravura chase scene through the hilly streets of Frisco between Steve's hot Ford Mustang and the baddie's comparatively rather middling Dodge Charger. Don't ask me, ask God host Norman Fell, also of the Stone Killer, Charlie Varick, and Bud the Chud, the first two from our Bronson and Joe Don Baker shows, Class A pompous asshole without cause Robert Vaughn <laughs> of Zombie 5 Killing Birds, and also of Bud the Chud, apoplectic stroke-baiting Kolchak boss Vincenzo, Simon Oakland, from our Dan Curtis in the 70s show, Allison Flo's grits-kissing Mel himself, Vic Tabak, much praised for his commanding performances in the Shaggy D.A. and 80s teen sex comedy Lover Boy, fill out the cast. But blinking you'll miss Jackie, who's in a whole two brief scenes of the film, as Steve's wife, who he takes out to dinner at some hippie club, while a trippy band plays psychedelic rock complete with flute, bongos, and loud electric guitar. Tellingly, they ignore each other completely throughout the scene. Not bad, but very much overrated and outshadowed by films like Sergio Salomon's Violent City from our Bronson show, whose Carl Chase blows this one all the shit. It's weird. It's a weird movie, actually, because it's like it's like a movie that begins like you know the character. No, we don't know the character. Much like you know, it's uh, much like um, much like Dirty Harry begins. It's very both these movies, Dirty Harry and they don't share the same director. That was uh, Don, Don Siegel. Siegel. Yeah. But Peter Yates was a British director. 
you know, Bullet begins, they're akin because they both begin like, we know, we we seen another one of these? No, we didn't. Yeah. You know? And what's uh, odd about it, too, is McQueen, even compared to Eastwood, who's known for being reticent and whatever, he's very much an under-actor. He just kind of goes there and it's like, it's almost like he showed up off the street and didn't know his lines because he just barely says any. And he's just kind of like acting very, what seems naturally. So it's it's a strange, understated performance for a film that you would think would like, oh, yeah, this is a big star-making moment. Like, well, it's interesting. It's not a bad cop film, but it's not as big as its reputation would suggest. Well, I mean, uh, the... the... You can't knock that um, <laughs> those chase scenes. I mean, they're oh, pretty. Yeah. They're pretty fantastic. And, and and. But like I said, later films took that and really one upped it. And even very oh, yeah. recent ones later, like I say, like Soldier Salma, because that was I think three, four years later. Yeah, yeah. I like Bullet. Yeah, but as far as Jackie Bissett, it's a another. Yeah, not quite. Yeah, eye candy, but barely there. She starred in her next picture. Uh, the first time or Secret World? I haven't seen either of those. The first time, yeah. I've not seen this. This is a, uh, I know, right? But we have to acknowledge this is a 1969 coming of age film. Um, I don't know anybody that's seen this. <laughs> uh, three teen guys decide to lose their virginity and they pressure one girl to be involved in this thing. I don't know. It sounds like an 80s teen sex comedy or something. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a United Artists picture. And oddly enough, this thing totally fell off the face of the earth. A Secret World was her next lead role. And this is a French film. French film, screenplay by Gerard Brock, who actually worked with Polanski. So there, I mean, it's promising. I don't know. As far as I can tell, this is all in French. It's about a woman who was involved in an automobile crash and the rich and sensitive and we don't give a fuck if you're rich and sensitive so her next big thing was airport yes go with it so 1970 airport this was the second to last film directed by a george seaton of no appreciable credits of note and it shows filled with irritating woodstock slash thomas crown affair style split and multi-screen shots this decade and a half behind the times 1970 disaster film features the first of a decade worth of ridiculously unintentionally hilarious starfucker projects involving bad cg <laughs> tons of soap opera for aging if not washed up celebs and absurd hammy and over-the-top situations involving what your insurance company refuses to cover as acts of god or shit corporations cheaping out on materials and ignoring safety regulations thereby resulting in mass casualties of characters you either actively despise or are just generally glad to see obliterated by credits roll. Besides Lee Dean Martin, most notably of the fun Matt Helm films, and Jackie, the guilty parties include Burt Lancaster of Sweet Smell and Success and List of Adrian Messenger from our Tony Curtis and Frank Sinatra shows, the excellent Spanish horror corruption of Chris Miller's Gene Seberg, Airport series regular George Kennedy of the Dirty Dozen, Boston Strangler, and Nightmare at Noon from our Charles Bronson and Tony Curtis shows, and my interview with Nico Mastarakis over at Third Eye Cinema. Helen Hayes, memorably of the fun 70s mystery series The Snoop Sisters, <laughs> Edith Bunker and Angel Dust's Maureen Stapleton, The Giant Spider Invasion's Barbara Hale from my career spanning chat with Bill Rabane over at Third Eye Cinema, and ubiquitous 70s bit player and Brian Clemens thriller regular Gary Collins. I did a great review of the airport films, inclusive of Air Concord Airport 79, which was separate, over at thirdeyesemina.wordpress.com. 
But suffice to say, it comes off like a very early 60s TV movie with boozy relic Dean Martin as the hero pilot of a plane that never actually gets airborne, the entire film taking place with it grounded out in a tarmac and filled with stiff-looking old guys in frumpy pastel business suits with helmet-head hairdos. Jackie is rather unbelievably the sexy stewardess banging old, out-of-date Dino Crochetti between flights and gets a few minor scenes on board, but this is by far the least entertaining of the generally vastly amusing airport films. Yeah, it's... Yeah, the least fun of the airport pictures, but you know something's up when Dean Martin winds up being the one you like the most in this thing. Yes. <laughs> because you know, he had a natural charisma. He had a natural charm. We did it. We did a Dean Martin show, did we? No, we did not. We should. He he had a a a natural charisma. Oh yeah. And he had some pictures. He will. He you know it's almost like Dean showed up at the set. You know Dean was famous for this thing. And I don't know if it's hearsay or a legend or they wanted to cover something up. I tend to think the latter. When they say, oh, Dean used to put the uh, iced tea and uh, ice cubes in a glass because he didn't like to drink. Fuck that. Yeah, shit. right. Bullshit. <laughs> and, and, but Dean would be the kind of guy, I always got the, the feeling in my heart of hearts that if he showed up on set for a movie, if he thought, I kind of like this role, he would hand his drink to somebody and say, okay, I'm going to try and, you know, he has all the, okay, a lot, you know, a lot of these over-the-hill guys in this, including Burt, who, who you know, I, I really admire a lot of Burt Lancaster's films, but I remember Dean Martin the most from this. What's notable about this is that Jackie Bissett has got, like, major billing in this picture, which mm-hmm. is nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and she's, I want to say she's barely in it, considering how many people are in this. She's barely in it. But... Compared to some of her other films at that point, it was pretty good. Uh, she got a lot of airtime, considering. She started so, in a nice picture, right? You know, the Grasshopper, I did not see that one. That was another one she got a, a Laurel Award for. So, uh, have you seen it? Yes, but not for years. I have it on a, a disc set with a couple of other things. Directed by Jerry Paris, who used to do a lot of TV programs. <laughs> You're not going to believe this. Not only did he direct a couple of Police Academy movies... <laughs> But for television, he he worked in, God, so many, so many TV shows. Dick Van Dyke show. I mean, the guy goes way the fuck back. Gary Marshall wrote this. So you think it's going to be a comedy, right? No. Because Jackie Bissett co-stars with Jim Brown. Interesting. Yes, that Jim Brown. So she plays a cheerful young lady, yearns to be back with her fiancé, and uh, the relationship doesn't work out. She's, she lives in Canada. She goes to L.A. She then goes to Vegas. And she meets Jim Brown, African-American pro football player who probably has a really big dick, right? So <laughs> they fall in love and get married, I'm sure. She's kind of like a skinny girl, so he kind of filled her up. So <laughs> Maybe that's why they cast her in Black Gun. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but... Anyway, there's, there's a subplot involving. <laughs> you know, at some point, this is going to go that way. Uh. So, so then he he does shift to her, and she becomes a party girl. You know what that means. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And and she gets introduced to bad guys like Joseph Cotton. Yeah. All right. And 
just it goes downhill from there. But she gets involved with the really, really bad rich people. And the funny thing is, she's actually not underage. But by the time the movie ends, uh, she decided to like screw this life she has gotten involved in, and she tells him she's actually too young. So uh, they arrest everybody. I think I actually saw this on TV, like on Balance TNT things back in the early '90s or something. Because it sounds very familiar. <laughs> Very strange, but not yeah. as strange as her next film, which I know you saw. Oh, yes. The Mephisto Waltz, 1971. People should be born in their 70s and live their life backward. The present arrangement simply doesn't make sense. I agree with that. Paul Wenkos, whose sole noteworthy credit appears to be early TV movie Fear No Evil, directs this interesting occult entry, which, if we weren't specifically focused on satanic cults, would have fit in nicely with our Satan in the 70s show. Critics, even when they're right, they're stupid. They don't understand that after a concert, there's blood on the piano keys. Kurt Jurgens of uh, Vault of Horror, The Spy Who Loved Me, and the strangely unreleased Sleep of Death is a famed concert pianist and Satanist who pulls a brotherhood of Satan from, once again, the aforementioned Satanist 70 show, unhappless former pianist-turned-music critic Alan Alda of the boulderized TV version of MASH, and we talked that film in our Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland shows, and Canadian Bacon. Jackie is the smoking hot wife of Alda who susses out the weird vibes coming from Jurgens and his much younger daughter come de facto wife, Barbara Parkins of Valley of the Dolls and the excellent Alistair McLean film Puppet on a Chain who is screwing Jurgens slash Alda ever since the swap. But Jackie's learned enough about the occult to pull a switcheroo of her own. Brad Dillman of Wenko's Fear No Evil, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, The Enforcer, Sudden Impact, and Love and Bullets from our Go Ape, Clint Eastwood, and Charles Bronson shows, is Parkin's ex, whose Jackie winds up banging before she dies a fiery death. I guess if you gotta go, at least fuck a hot number first. There's even a significant part for the voice of Lucy Van Pelt herself, Pamela Ferdin, who'd snuff her career with the family-friendly toolbox murders as Jackie's business partner and pal. There's plenty of hallucinatory business involving mass swinger parties, a dog with a human death mask, and a couple of trippy dream sequences, but it's a solid 70s TV movie-style occult mystery thriller along the lines of The Devil's Daughter or The Sentinel, both covered in our thrice-noted Satan in the 70s show. I always really liked this film. It's very strange. It's very dark. It's very... Yes. It's sort of like... <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You know, this is uh, just about pre-MASH, I, I, I suspect. Pre-MASH, the television yes. show. And, you know, Alan... I hear the ice at the glass. <laughs> Alan Alder, who was a uh, primarily a stage guy, and, and he did small parts, you know, us in the lead role. I'm sorry, he was... He's, he's really unlikable in these kind of pictures... Because you could, he's not such an actor where you can't see through him. And right away, you disliked him. And you, you knew what was going on here. I give him kudos for realizing they had a dark, satanic film early on. And marketing it as such. You know, and uh, yeah, so post-Rosemary's Baby, pre-Sentinel. This was quite the unusual movie. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, next up, she does... Out five films that I did not say. Believe in Me, Secrets, Stand Up and Be Counted, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, and The Thief Who Came to Dinner. So do you need to cover any of those? or? Oh, yeah, I think I need to mention The Thief Who Came to Dinner. Uh, oop, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. You know, John Huston, for years, uh, with Paul Newman, wanted to make this movie based on this so-called uh, actual historical figure. Uh, Judge Roy Bean, who was like a... Uh, I don't know, how do you call it, like a post-Civil War judge who was kind of off the beaten end and kind of nuts, and Jackie played his wife, Rose. But this had, this is a John Houston film, but this just had to be one of those pictures where 
if they weren't drinking, they were fucking. Because <laughs> the cast was bizarre. You know, you had Newman Bissett, Tab Hunter, John Huston himself, Stacy Keach, Roddy McDowell, Anthony Perkins, Anthony Zerby, Ava Gardner, Victoria Principal, yes, her, <laughs> Ned Beatty, Matt Clark, Bill McKinney, and Michael Sarazin, who actually, actually, she wasn't Judge Roy Bean's wife. She was his daughter. Michael Sarazin played her husband, probably to watch over her. You're in this high testosterone cast. Now I'm going to go there, too. So <laughs> it's, a, it's not a good film from John Huston, and it's... Not one of Paul Newman's more solid efforts, and it didn't do well in the in the theater. It's just a weird, oddball, uh, what they call those westerns when they're trying to be retroactive and kind of like hip after the case. And The Thief Who Came to Dinner is a, an enjoyable comedy thing with Ryan O'Neill and Jackie. You know, this is... Around that time, Ryan O'Neill found a shtick to Barbara Streisand. You know, I have to say, some of the pictures he did with her are quite right. I actually enjoyed a couple of Ryan O'Neill's early 70s pictures, and this one was okay. And this is before he fucked over Lee Majors by uh, (laughs) his best pal, Lee Majors. Oh, yeah, watch over my wife, Farrah Fawcett, while I'm doing this film. And he comes back, and (laughs) he's, like, fucking her, and she dumped him. Like, oh, that's great. Thanks, guy. (laughs) Would you? Well, no. you know, that is definitely a temptation, but <laughs> nice friend. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> the thief who came to dinner was this uh, by Bud Yorkin, All in the Family. Yeah, that one. Walter Hill did the screenplay. Yes, that Walter Hill. It's got a kind of interesting cast here. We got you know, Warren Oates, Jill Clayburgh, Ned Beatty, Gregory Sierra from uh, Barney Miller, Michael Murphy, a couple other people, John Hillerman from Magnum P.I. <laughs> Magnum P.I., yes. And it's a it's a heist kind of picture where Ryan O'Neill plays a jewel thief, and you know, of course, Jacqueline is like the femme fatale who's trying to trick, trick him around to buying, you know, doing shit. And Warren Oates is a the PI guy on the case. And you know, for a, what's That's that? That's a good cast. It's a good cast. And what was that Hitchcock movie with Cary Grant as a jewel thief? Oh, I love that one. It's uh, it takes a thief. Wait, no, a thief. Oh, sorry, to catch a thief. Sorry. To catch a thief, right? And this is like the the not quite to catch a thief but you know what it's not terrible it's, it's okay so day for night 1973 originally known as la nuit Macron, one of the three or four films that got me into high-prior european art house cinema as a young teen the others being lena vertmo was swept away louis Buñuel's discreet charm of the bourgeois and cousin cousine the film that led woody allen to cast star marie christine barreau in stardust memories this apotheosis of francois truffaut's generally autobiographical films remains strangely unappreciated by name critics, which shows that they can't be bothered to actually read a film, however obvious the point or subtext. I held a class on this film as contrasted by its blatant and obvious antipode and cynical response, Olivier Asayas' Maggie Chung starring Irma Vep, which two films I highly recommend you view one after the other to bring out what should already be obvious. Truffaut's film is not merely a celebration of cinema and the art of filmmaking, but a positive tone and life-affirming commentary on the nature of existence. Whether you choose to bring it to the level of Truffaut's on-screen director serving as analog for a benevolent and very involved deity, gently guiding and helping his creation through their various personal struggles and chaotic lives, or just as a compassionate and empathic humanitarian of sorts, bringing a disparate and often chaotic jumble of characters together with the aim of creating something beautiful out of all the myriad troubles and left turns life throws at us, this is very very openly a statement that life is worth it, and it can and all will work together for good in the end. No matter who you are or what you're wrestling with, inclusive of bad relationships, ill-advised affairs, weird neuroses, crumbling lives and careers, even the death of a likable main character, by working together for a common cause and greater good, if you will, 
it's all part of the plan, and we can achieve something better. Not really some ersatz form of immortality through our joint creations and efforts, but making each other's lives mean something. It's all about helping each other and striving to achieve and becoming something higher in existential terms. I absolutely adore this film and everything Truffaut, a half-deaf war veteran who'd seen enough in his personal life to be as cynical as a Roman Polanski, was trying to get across. I never cared much for his other works like Jules and Jim or The 400 Blows, but La Nuit Americaine remains one of my all-time favorite films to this day. I've seen it dozens of times, with and without others, and it's still one of a handful I'd have to take with me to a desert island. Irma Vep is such a blatant inverse commentary in this film, it's ridiculous. Even going so far as to cast Truffaut on-screen analog and star of Day for Night, Jean-Pierre Léo, in the Truffaut role, as a defeated, ineffectual, and ultimately powerless director over a cast whose chaos not only fails to be sublimated into a worthwhile end goal, but literally tears everyone involved apart. It's a much longer story well worth discussing at some point, but one we won't go into here. Suffice to say, not one fucking big-name supposed film critic has noticed either of these statements or the ties and contrast between the two, which is absolutely jaw-dropping and speaks to their amazing denseness, if not utter blindness and stupidity. How the hell could you not see this, much less make the obvious connections between the two? Anyway, that's what you have us for. Someday we may will cover those films in far more depth. I've done it before, so I can do it again. Jackie is the effective female lead as a famed if troubled American actress with some serious personal issues, including a recent nervous breakdown, May-December marriage, and an affair with a petulant childish Leo herein. While as noted, this is very much an ensemble picture, with even members of the crew being given plenty of screen time, attention, and importance to the script, note what I was saying earlier, it's Bissett and Leo who come out as the true leads in focus, despite all their myriad personal failings and issues. One of the best and ultimately uplifting films you're likely to sit through, and regulars of this podcast or Third Eye Cinema know very well that I don't offer that sort of praise lightly. This is a fantastic film, and it says so much about not just film, but life. Wow. <laughs> it's you, very condensed version. Yeah, you spoke in so emotionally powerful of this film. I enjoyed it. I always have. I saw this in the theater and uh, was it Theater 80 St. Mark's or the Cinema Village in the uh, in Greenwich Village back in the day. And uh, no, I always enjoyed this. And uh, I didn't know you were such a lover of Truffaut. And and, and no, just this film. Just, just this film. film because you know he's so lovely in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, actually, he was entertaining in that one. I did like him in that. Yeah. I have no problem with Truffaut. It's just I don't find his other films as moving to me. And they're very autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong That's with them. Nice People love them. Too. I can't wait to do a Spielberg show with you. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Spielberg, whose only film that I really cared for was Jaws. Uh, but anyway. Oh, uh, you're help me out. <laughs> uh, I, Close Encounters was not terrible. I've got to admit, I had watched that again for... Actually, it was another class that I didn't run in the same uh, job. And somebody had gotten us that box set, you know, with all the, the three discs and whatever the hell was in it. And I watched it again. I was like, all right, I'd seen this in the theater. I was like a little kid. And I didn't think much of it then. You know, I was, like, thought it was hilarious, him, like, making mountains out of mashed potatoes and all this crap. And, of course, you know, the whole UFO thing. But, but well, I don't know if I got it, but it's not as terrible as, like, you know, E.T. or, you know, those other horrible films he does. Right, I'm not going there with you. Come on, next. But anyway. <laughs> so, 1973, Le Magnifique, a.k.a. The Man from Acapulco. 
One of the most dreaded of subgenres, the spy spoof, is further bogged down by also being part of one of the most dreaded regional exports, the French comedy. Jean-Paul Belmond, though, and his bulbous Jimmy Durante nose, which deserves a credit all of its own, was already used to this sort of thing from his starring roles in the Jacques Tati-worthy That Man from Rio and the bizarre multi-director, multi-bond starfucker project Casino Royale, which we mentioned before. See, I did remember Belmondo just not in talking about Casino Royale. He would attempt to redeem himself with grim policier fare like The Hunter Will Get You in, Le Professionnel later in the 70s. But suffice to say, beyond some pleasantly aesthetic settings and camera work, it's Bissett's comparatively prominent screen time that leaves this anywhere close to watchable. Belmondo is a down-on-his-luck paperback spy novelist akin to the clown who wrote those trashy Nick Carter Killmonger books in the 70s and early 80s. Despite being a total schmuck, the stunningly luscious Bissett, who moves into his apartment building, is a big fan of his books, and he writes her in as the smoking-hot, stylishly, barely-clad love interest, while his snarky publisher becomes the evil sub-Blofeld crime lord. Half of this film is his writing-slash-fantasy sequences, interrupted by the far more depressing reality. There's a happy ending where she, for no real reason, winds up with a schleppy trash novelist who tosses his typewriter out the window. Uh, yay? But how's he supposed to make a living now? And will she really stay with this guy? <laughs> it's a whole hell of a lot better than most French comedy spy spoofs, save perhaps the first Jean Marais Fantomas film, but it's a sadly rare instance of Jackie being given much more than an eye-candy window dressing role. But, Dan, does she look luscious, even when she shows up at his door in pigtails and a sweatshirt, which really says something. I do like this film for all its faults, but, yeah, be warned, it's a French comedy and a spy spoof, so it could take some uh, getting used to. Well, spy, spy spoofs is something we all, we all hold close, near and dear. Uh, <laughs> no, that's what you put we it. We like the spy genre, yeah. and uh, I love the spy genre, but spy spoofs are another story. Spy spoofs are another story. They don't always work, and they... Um, Philippe de Broca was uh, one of those directors that kind of like, gosh, let's let's slaughter it on deep and thick, you know. <laughs> and it, yeah, the thing was, if they played the straight, it would have been more fun. Oh yeah, I, this was done. I I've seen a couple of Italian films, Italian-made films that did the same kind of thing before. So this wasn't new, and they no. probably. Even that man from Rio, that was actually a much worse film, but same idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like somebody who's uh, wanting to be something else, but he's not. Yeah, it's a famous Secret Life of Walter Mitty. There's a famous one. See, yeah, that's the kind of thing that is, yeah. Murder on the Orient Express, isn't it? Yes, 1974, Murder on the Orient Express. Yet another 70s starfucker affair, this time from City Lumet, who gave us the Anderson tapes, The Offense, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, and Death Trap from our Sean Connery, Al Pacino, and Michael Caine shows. <laughs> the cast list is ridiculous. Albert Finney, Wolf and Looker from our Michael Crichton show. Lauren Bacall, The Have and Have Not, Dark Passage, Key Largo, The Big Sleep, and Sex and the Single Girl from our Humphrey Bogart and Tony Curtis shows. Martin Balson, The Anderson Tapes, Mitchell, The Stone Killer, Death Switch 3 from our Sean Connery, Joe Don Baker, and Charles Bronson shows. Ingrid Bergman from Notorious and Casablanca from our Bogart show. Jacqueline Bissett, of course, Jean-Pierre Cassel of The Three and Four Musketeers, Bumal's Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, and Who Was Killing the Great Chest of Europe from our Oliver Reed and George Siegel shows, uh, Sean Connery of our three shows on Bond and the Connery Beyond Bond show, John Gilgood of Tinto Brass's Caligula, Anthony Perkins of The Black Hole and The Ravishing Idiot from our Bordeaux show, <laughs> 
Vanessa Redgrave of Blow Up, The Devils, and Quiet Place in the Country. The first two from our David Hemmings and Oliver Reed shows. Richard Whitmark, noir regular and star of To the Devil a Daughter, Roller Coaster, and Coma from our Hammer films. George Siegel and Michael Crichton shows. Michael York of the Three and Four Musketeers films. Logan's Run, Island of Dr. Moreau from the 70s. And Phantom of Death, the former and latter from our Oliver Reed and Ruggiero Diodato shows. George Kalaris of The Assassination Bureau, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, Tower of Evil, Papal Yaw, The Antichrist, and The Ritz. Many discussed in our Oliver Reed. Hammer, Steve McQueen, Amicus, and Italian Sleeves shows, and Vernon Dobchev of the Assassination Bureau, Beast in the Cellar, The Destructors, and Catacombs, from our Oliver Reed, Amicus, Michael Caine, and Full Moon Picture shows. Unfortunately, despite an amazing cast and a popular train set and typically well-crafted mystery from Agatha Christie, about which all I'll say is just about everyone in the cast did it, it comes off strangely lackluster. Maybe it was the cinematography or the necessarily chatty script, which revolves around long monologues from just about everyone in the cast, but I never warmed to this one. I mean, Finney, who I loved in Wolfen and enjoyed in Crichton's Looker, is no David Suchet in the Poirot role, but honestly, who is? Certainly not blustery Peter Ustinov, or how about Tony Randall in the ABC Murders? Suchet is quite literally the only actor to ever do credit to the role without camping it up intolerably. For her part, Bissett, when she's even on screen for far too little of the running time, looks radiant and pulls off a reasonably credible elky summer accent as a German countess. Maybe worth a look, given all the heavyweights together in one film, but yeah. I don't know. I, I remember all these came out in the in the mid seventies and, and I watched them and, and it was like, Oh jeez. You know <laughs> It was True. It was quite a thing to see a lot of actors you like peering together in the same movie. Yes. But they could never really nail for these pictures the the Christie prose and the the Christie um, what's the, what's what I'm looking for you know like the the way the kind of dry intellectualism that leads the dry to, intellectual yeah. I actually didn't mind the Kenneth Branagh remake of this which was about three years back so I thought that was a little better than this we we still had Starfucker 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 that's where it's from <laughs> yeah yeah we still had the Starfucker listen to the lyrics folks you'll get it <laughs> but uh, yeah I I, I wasn't sure huge fan of this. So, The Spiral Staircase, 1975, Peter Collinson, who dropped that steaming turd of a heist film, The Italian Job, on our unsuspecting heads, and we took that on Funny Crap Fest in our Michael Caine show, delivers this surprisingly turgid, if still rather atmospheric, remake of an equally boring 40s melodrama come stalker thriller. Collinson, who'd redeemed himself for these two excretions with the Susan George on a Blackman fright from our Ambicus show, and the enjoyable Harry Allen Towers, and then there were none from our Oliver Reed show, Cast Jackie, still very much in her prime, and the only real reason to check this one out if you must, alongside the not-quite-as-sexy but damn-close Gail Honeycutt of Fragment of Fear from our David Hemming show, Legend of Hell House from our Roddy McDowell show, and the Poliziotesci slash Jalo hybrid Strange Shadows in an Empty Room, also Christopher Plummer of The Silent Partner from our Elliot Gould show, and High Point from our Richard Harris show, and John Philip Law of Death Rides a Horse, Barbarella, and Danger Diabolic from our Mario Bava show as the Nutjob Stalker. It's trying desperately to be some cross between Audrey Hepburn slash Alan Arkin vehicle wait until dark, and either Rebecca or Jane Eyre with Jackie as a mute lead, traumatized by a fire that took her husband and kid, serving as caretaker to a crusty old bag she's related to. There are weird folks haunting and flitting in and out of the house like Honeycutt and Plummer, and in the end it turns out that the most dangerous weirdo of all is family. How true. A lot of folks say it's a big step down from the original, but despite some nice Hitchcockian use of light and shadow to create a sense of underlying menace, that film was just much of a talky melodrama weepy, as this one is a boring, talky, me-generation daytime soap opera. 
There's also several creepy shots of the house interiors and even a thunderous rainstorm or two, but it's simply too slow and belabored to have any real interest, despite Honeycutt really strutting herself as an oversexed tramp throughout, and Jackie working her in knacking how to get it slash cul-de-sac era shtick as mute eye candy. Yeah. Well, I wanted to say I really like Peter Collinson's tying job, so yeah. I know you did, yes. You know I do I don't know why you don't like Senator Michael Caine show. You know, Michael Caine show. I really like that's a fun movie. Anyway. Yeah, well, I'm glad you pointed out that the 1946 picture with uh, by Robert Sionimak, which is the re- this is a remake of, is kind of dry. Yeah. And so this is updated a bit, not too much. Peter it's not Co- as bad to me, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like Peter Collinson is known for sometimes some very edgy movies. He's really made some edgy pictures. Open Season, The Sellout, one I'm thinking of the most. Uh, I really like his Agatha Christie, Then There Were None, by Oliver Reed. Oh, yes, that's a great one. Actually, that's a, a great one. Yeah, yeah, so he's, he's made some really interesting pictures. This is just like needless remake, but it's nice to see Jackie get a, a lead role. And then she appeared in a really strange picture next. Did you ever see End of the Game? No, I did not. I saw that, yeah. It's a German film, isn't it? Um, Well, sort of. It's directed by Maximilian Schell. Okay. It's a very talky picture. You know, it's funny. John Voight, yes, everybody's favorite. You know, Trump supporter. <laughs> Martin Ritt, a well-known director, is in this. Robert Shaw. Yes, that Robert Shaw. Was your favorite movie. And <laughs> it's a strange, it's almost theatrical film, totally based on a book, uh, The Judge and His Hangman. So Maximilian Schell is like this well-known actor, film, television, German actor. Um, and then we can go into his credits and... He was in the black hole, I think, wasn't he? Yes, he was in the black hole later yeah. on. Yes. Well, it's about. Here's the thing. It's, it's a very tricky. It's it's like Death Watch, and then not. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's like uh, what is that? Michael Caine, George, George. Uh, uh, well, you're talking about Death Trap, right? Death Trap. Sorry, yeah. Death Trap. Yeah, it's it's kind With of Christopher like Reeves. a mind, yeah, mind fucking kind of movie, where it's very puzzle, like a puzzle box. Except it's set in Europe with all these thick European accented people, except for John Boyd, who's doing a pretty decent German accent. Donald Sutherland, one of our favorites, is in this too. Yeah, we did show on him. Yeah, and, and, and it's just, it's a kind of tricky picture. I, I It just didn't do well anywhere. <laughs> Because when you do these kind of puzzle box movies about, okay, so it's in reference to something that happened many years before between several individuals about a murder. And then it's years later, and then there's somebody who's a new detective investigating the old case, but he finds himself going up against heads of a a leading industrialist who might be involved in the old murder case. And of course, he falls in love with the daughter, Jackie Bissett. You know, it's, it's one of those strange movies. I, I saw this in the theater, believe it or not. I just didn't really dig it. Well, this sounds like a cross between an Agatha Christie film and Ghost Story. Remember that movie? Yeah. <laughs> With all the old guys? Yeah, so after that and The Sunday Woman, which was an Italian film, she does Seen Knives in 1976. You're rough, smart, and you got a lot of great-looking bits and pieces. I wonder what you'd notice. Jackie is in her most stunning in this Charles Bronson P.I. slash neo-noir from Bronson regular J. Lee Thompson of Eye of the Devil, Terrace Bulba, Battle and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, The Canon King Solomon's Mines, Firewalker, all of those from our Donald Pleasance, Tony Curtis, Go Ape, Canon Films, and Chuck Norris shows. And with Bronson, Evil That Men Do, Murphy's Law, Messenger of Death, and my two favorite Bronson films, Ten to Midnight and Kinjite. Are you throwing me out? No man in his right mind would throw you out. 
Bronson is an ex-cop and crime reporter hired by John Houseman of The Fog from our John Carpenter show. Some rich, fat fuck who hires him to find some missing financial ledgers. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie is the sexy young thing of undefined relationship who also lives in this place. You do the math. Things get convoluted really fast, like when he's walking around with ten grand and winds up dropping into an all-night laundromat where there's a corpse in a washing machine. Magically, the cops show up and bust him, but he's let go without charges when one of the detectives recognizes him. You're pushing a bucket of shit around with a short end of a stick. That's a nice figure of speech. And you can fall in the bucket easy, just like me. Cocaine is involved, likely in front of and behind the cameras, but it looks and feels right. Jackie provides as much sex appeal as Charlotte Rampling of the same era, and who we did a show on, by the way. And it's far less vigilante vengeance-obsessed than most Bronson films of the 70s and 80s. So I always liked this one quite a bit, despite its bad reputation. No, it's actually not too bad. It's one of the few Bronson movies you could see without his wife. Jill Island, who I have nothing against Jill Island. She was attractive. I liked her. but She yeah. was attractive. I liked her. And she was fine as an actress. It was just like that Charles Brunson wound up casting her in almost every fucking thing he did. Yes. <laughs> well, he was devoted to her, I guess. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's almost like Clint Eastwood and Sandra Locke when she was still with him. Yes, yes, you're right. You're right. But no, it's it's very nice to see Jackie in this, working on this, and... Uh, it's a fun picture. I don't love it. It's probably her most Charlotte Rampling-esque role. I'll say that. Yeah, okay. So, 1977, The Deep. There were a hell of a lot of knockoffs and imitators of the huge success that was Steven Spielberg's only good film, Jaws, back in the Bicentennial year. Barracuda, Tentacles, Piranha, Blood Beach, Killer Fish, The Last Shark, Great White, Cruel Jaws. The list goes on and on. There were even a few non-shark or fish-based marine epics made from Jaws author Peter Benchley, like the terrible Michael Caine flop, The Island, which we discussed in our Michael Caine show. And so we come to this... This very film, faring far better than close analog Charlotte Rampling and her Jaws knockoff Orca, which we talked in both our Charlotte Rampling and Richard Harris shows, our girl Jackie starts off this Peter Benchley adaptation proudly displaying her perky nipples in loving close-up in a one-woman wet t-shirt contest, and that's just in the first five minutes. The convoluted plot involves a typically mouth-watering Jackie and doofy Nick Nolte, whose best work was playing outclass sidekick to Eddie Murphy in the 48 Hours films, and here sports a ridiculous Izod shirt that looks like Charlie Brown just joined the Fantastic Four <laughs> as a vacationing pair of proto-yuppies come treasure hunters who uncover a shipwreck full of somehow still viable morphine and possible Spanish gold. They pile up with a crusty Irish treasure hunter, Joe's veteran Robert Shaw, also from Russia with Love, from our trio of Bond shows, and run afoul of local voodoo houngan and drug dealer Lou Gossett Jr. of The Laughing Policeman, J.D.'s Revenge from our Blaxploitation show, the entertaining Joe's 3D, and Firewalker from our Chuck Norris show, who terrorizes Bissett quite a bit and makes her strip on multi watches. Sadly, she's a lot more demure in this scene than she was at the opening, only to tell her to get dressed and go home. What an uncomfortable tease scene. Eli Wallach, whose campy performances single-handedly ruined two Sergio Leone films, first of which we talked in our Clint Eastwood show, also appears for a short while, but the film is filled with nice underwater shipwreck investigation, and both Bissett and Gossett make up for Shaw's ridiculous exaggerated brogue and Nolte's typical ham-fisted cluelessness. I always liked this one. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to watch. Um, <laughs> Especially the first couple minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's based on a Peter Benchley book. Wow, really? Yeah, that guy who wrote Jaws. Um, and the island. <laughs> and, the, and, and the book is fine. I read the book. And it's funny how in hindsight, uh, looking back from where we are now today, where there are a lot of things you can't say about women in a demeaning way or or uh, portray in a demeaning way. And I get it. But she knew very well that you're going to be photographed in this very... <laughs> you're not wearing anything. You're nude and you're going to have this t-shirt and you have very pronounced nipples and so 
that was the selling point of this picture. Yes. And yeah, it was suddenly everybody's like, "Who's Jackie Bassett? Oh my god!" <laughs> After a while, it was like it wasn't Peter ben, uh, Peter Yates or Peter Benson Sadiq. Was Jackie Bassett posters replaced Farrah Fawcett? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I remember that. I actually got into the film in the first place because of Jackie. I mean, beyond that specific scene, just, but yes, I mean. <laughs> well, that, that was the thing. It was suddenly, it was like, who's that? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it just became a who's that. And then she worked with Jay Lee Thompson next with a story by Nico Masterakis. Yes. Your favorite. Yes. Very strange. And we did talk about this in my interview with Nico Rosarakis again over at Third Eye Cinema. You can check out the podcast feed. I'm sure you will find all the old Third Eye Cinema shows. And you know, the podcast is not officially dead. It's if somebody comes up that I feel like interviewing and want to do a career-length interview or something along those lines with, then it will come back. But, you know, I think I've covered who I can cover at this point. So, yeah, The Greek Tycoon, I don't really want to get into it because it is basically a sort of, ah, uh, not sorted. Nico didn't write sorted, but he was kind of a, he was involved with television and media over there in Greece and got censured by them a couple times for calling people out. He's that kind of guy. Mm. So he was kind of blunt about his opinion of the whole Jackie O slash Aristotle Onassis, who was a very rich man that uh, basically bought the former Kennedy wife affections mm. in the 70s. She was kind of living like Maria Callas, I guess, at the time, or Real around for that matter, just off of this guy's money and good graces on his boats and whatever the hell else, huge ships that he had. And that's what it's about. It's sort of, I don't want to say an expose, because that's not really the case, but it's that sort of over-dramatized, kind of biting biopic of the two of them. Very, very strange. I mean, I... Yeah, it's it's like, yeah, okay, I, I understand for some reasons you don't want to get into it. It was like, they were at the time, you know, it's like for years after the Kennedy assassination, and it was well known, Aristotle and Nassus, Anthony Quinn, this movie, and Jackie Kennedy, and him kind of got together, and but it's a combination of... <laughs> Jay Lee, another J. Lee Thompson film. We just spoke of J. Lee Thompson. But it's a combination of whoever we can get for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Supporting cast members like James Franciscus, Eddie Albert, Eddie Albert. Euro spy veterans Luciana Paluzzi, Marilu Tullo, Camilo Spar have also popped up in this. So that's worth watching, including Marilu Tullo as Maria Callas. So that's, that's, that's a thing. Is it any good? I don't know. It's pretty. It was pretty long. I remember that. So, 1978, who is killing the great chefs of Europe? She was apparently nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress. Jackie is hampered somewhat by yet another horrible visit to the hairstylist, this time a ridiculous, poofy Marsha Wallace feather duster perm. We covered this failed attempt at a Pink Panther-esque comedy mystery in our George Siegel show, but long story short, Jackie and George are a divorced couple where she's a five-star Zagat's pastry chef, and he's a lowbrow fast food chain mogul. When she gets invited to cater for famed restaurant critic and gourmand Robert Morley of Nico Mastarakis is the wind, speaking of Nico again, <laughs> from my career-spanning interview of Nico at Third Eye Cinema, she starts sleeping around with fellow Euro-trash iron chefs as George attempts to interfere and worm his lowbrow New York way back into her heart and bed. Oh, and meantime, all these famous chefs are being taken out in the manner of their most famed dishes. Ho, ho, what a knee-slapper. A weird cast of French arthouse regos and British and cult horror stars includes Jean-Pierre Cassel from The Screech Charm of the Bourgeois, 
Philippe Noiret of Le Grand Buffet or Oliver Richo's Assassination Bureau, Jean Le Mercier of Hammer's Hound of the Baskervilles and British Slap and Tickle Affairs, The Au-Pair Girls and Confessions of a Window Cleaner from our Hammer and Keeping the British End Up shows, and Lovejoy's latter season's love interest Carolyn Langriche in a bit part. But while certainly watchable enough, it's not very funny to anyone outside the more geriatric end of the PBS crowd, the sort who find crossword puns the sine qua non of pretentious pseudo-intellectual amusement. Jackie gets exactly one scene that's semi-sexy, also played out as an unfunny gag, where she and Noiré are moaning and dirty talking in their skivvies, but it's really just about the food they're eating, not fucking. Oh, ho, ho, what a ripper. Again, we talked about this one in more detail in our George Siegel show, if you're interested. Yeah, it's just not very good. It's not very, no. not very funny. and. Uh, but it was very popular at the time. It was very popular, and I don't know why. <laughs> and then one time ran out. Yes. So, yeah, there's actually something in between called Together, which I know nothing about. But, yes, 1980, when time ran out. Geritol guzzling septuagenarian William Holden of the world of Susie Wong and Sabrina from our Humphrey Bogart show, who died literally a year after filming this, is desperate to marry a barely over 35-year-old Jackie Bissett. He's also one of those shithead land developers who wants to gentrify a volcanic Hawaiian archipelago island, despite the bizarrely environmentally concerned oil rigger Paul Newman, who needs scientists' advice that perhaps we should stop fracking and bringing rich yuppie scum to what's likely to become another fucking Pompeii in very short order. Newman, whose sole films of interest are Alan's Towering Inferno and the rather excellent Cops with Compassion film Fort Apache of the Bronx, hadn't yet started selling decent salad dressings and donating all the proceeds to charities, but he's far more believably banging Bissett and becomes the de facto hero of the piece. Jackie, for her part, goes around throughout the entirety of the proceedings in a Bernadette Peters freight wig perm that looks like she stuck her finger in an electric socket. Being one of these big-budget disaster flicks of the 70s, there's a lot of time kill with minor characters like the Penguin and believable drunk from Stay Away Joe, Burgess Meredith, also of Torture Garden, 92 in the Shade, Golden Needles, and The Sentinel, from our Elvis films, Amicus, Peter Fonda, Joe Don Baker, and Satan in the 70s shows. The ubiquitous Ernest Borgnine of The Black Hole, Devil's Reign, from our William Shatner show, and the best Hill and Spencer comedy, as far as I'm concerned, Super Fuzz. Island of Dr. Moreau, Lone Wolf McQuaid, and Never Say Never Again's Barbara Carrera, from our Chuck Norris and trio of James Bond shows, James Franciscus of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Cat and Nine Tales, Good Guys Wear Black, Concord Airport 79, Margarita's Killer Fish, and Castellari's The Last Shark, from our Go Ape and Dario Argento shows, and print reviews of the airport films and Last Shark over at thirdeyecinema.wordpress.com. Pat Morita of Andy Sidaris' Do or Die, Amy Dolan's teen sex comedy Miracle Beach, and American Ninja 5, Brother, Son, and Sister Moon's Valentina Cortez, who sadly enough did nothing else of note, and the similarly afflicted Red Buttons, whose artistic sine qua non was chomps. You can see the Rolodex of washed up and minor stores was running a bit dry by 1980. Erwin Allen, who dominated the 70s with churn-em-out blockbuster disaster flicks like The Poseidon Adventure, Towering Inferno, and Swarm, had already degenerated into TV movies like Beyond the Poseidon Adventure from our Michael Caine show, but this one was so lackluster and panned by both critics and audiences alike, he literally retired from filmmaking with this one. It's fine if you enjoy these overblown Starfucker projects with nasty deaths and a lot of cheesy soap opera that was such a huge draw in that decade, but it's really nothing to write home about. There's a reason it was more or less forgotten and relegated to burn-on-demand status. Yeah, this is, well, this this and the Swarm were pretty much the last of the Irwin Allen disaster picks that uh, kind of put the, the cap on it, you know, just like... Neil in the coffin. <laughs> yeah, Neil in the coffin. Um, uh, you know, you're never going to see a cast like this again. That's the thing, you know. It's, 
Nah. So all joking aside, you know, it's it's quite it's quite an attempt. You know, I probably added to the budget. Besides you, Pat Maria, you didn't mention Karate Kid. Uh, oh yeah. It's like hello. Everybody knows him from there. And Red Buttons, <laughs> you didn't mention Poseidon Adventure, which is like which we covered not too long. But this is I actually like the Swarm better than I like this one. <laughs> yes, same here. And I was just like, I don't know. The Swarm is hilarious. This one, you know what it reminds me of? A decent episode of Fantasy Island more than a 70s disaster flick. Oh, an episode of Fantasy Island which has a lot of money and showing a, a volcanic eruption, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but things got worse with Inchon. Oh, God, Inchon. I didn't even want to bother watching this. I had seen parts of it a long time ago, but the main thing you need to know about Inchon, and I don't know how the hell they got Jackie Bisson involved, much as anybody else in the cast, but it was funded by and supposed to give money back to, a for-profit thing, for the Moonies. Yes. That's right. Korea's Sun Young Moon, the mass cult, with all those mass weddings that he did. And basically, nowadays, when you see that a lot of churches, at least in the afternoons, if not totally, are selling themselves out to become Korean churches, that's why they're not really like Catholics or you know Presbyterians or you know even Bible-thumping fundamentalists. They're all kind of ex-Moonies. <laughs> It's a weird thing that that culture kind of never lost, even though Sun Young Moon is long gone, and they may not necessarily identify as being a Mooney. Of course, that was always kind of an insult anyway, so nobody ever did. But nonetheless, that's what this whole thing was about. So audiences wisely saw that and said, fuck this guy, and stayed away in droves. So whatever money they sunk into it, which was actually quite a bit, was lost. So the the Moonies took a big hit from this, which was a good thing. Well, yeah, I... I... I saw this, not in the theater, I caught it years later. So, you know, Lawrence Olivier is already at this time up there in age. And so it looked like he was heavily made up. And, you know, it was way before the days of CGI, folks. So it was just, it looked weird. And Yeah, have you ever seen some Korean films like this, like APE or Varan the Unbelievable? You can see how cheap South Korean effects were at that point uh, in history. Yeah. And we and we just had a cast of what? You know, we had Ben Gazzara, Toshiro, Toshiro Mifune, Richard Roundtree, David Jansen. It was like, Rex Reed is in this. I, I, I'm sure there was drinks going all around, and nobody knew what the fuck was going on. Rex Reed. <laughs> but, but it's true. A lot of money for, for 1982, $1981, a lot of money was poured into this over-two-hour epic. The tune of about fifty million, and it only made five because <laughs> it was just so bad. And you know, it's it's a shame because directed by Terrence Young, who did some Bond movies and other things, and it was just like, yeah, not quite. Yeah, I actually wonder if they brought Rex Reed into the cast just hoping he would give it a good review. <laughs> Yeah, you know. So, yeah, she does something called Rich and Famous, which is not the famous Hitchcock film, which was actually pretty decent. I don't know anything about it otherwise. It's a, a Rich and Famous was pretty successful, actually. It's uh, critically, if not box office-wise. It was like a George Cooker who did... Wow, George Cooker, jeez. <laughs> 40s director. Yeah. yeah, way back when, but it was hamstringed by the worst chosen cast. You know, Jackie Bissett, Candace Bergen, okay, I could take that. But it was like they pulled everybody else from TV. David Selby, Hart Quentin Collins from Dark Shadows. Yeah, I mean, it's like Stephen Hill. I mean, these are, you know, from, yeah, the original, you know what, Mission Impossible. It was about two friends and their careers were both stalled and one became rich and famous. You know, it was like, who wants to see shit like this? Exactly. So it's like, if you couldn't get a decent cast, I think a little bit better was class. Did you see that? 
Unfortunately, I have not seen it in years, but I do remember this from, uh, I guess it was high school days, watching stuff on HBO or whatever, all those teen sex comedies that were around the time. And as I recall, Jackie was kind of like the sexy older mother or something, sleeping with this one guy or his friend or whatever the hell. I don't think she was in a hell of a lot of the film, but it was basically sold on her. Cause it was almost like, I don't want to say it was like Mrs. Robinson, uh, the graduate, no, no. Dustin Hoffman. But it's along those lines. You know, it's another one like that. Uh, was it My Tutor or whatever the hell with um, that one Emmanuel there, Silver Cristal? Or even that they're playing with fire with, I think, Sybil Danning. Same idea. You know, sexy older woman seduces young guy, and eventually they have to break it off because they help for obvious reasons. <laughs> I bought, yeah, probably I watched it on cable years and years ago. Yeah, same here. Where, where are we going next with this? Under the Volcano, 1984. She was actually, once again, nominated for Golden Globe Award, Best Supporting Actress. Albert Finney of Looker from our Michael Crichton show and Wolfen, not to mention the earlier mentioned two for the road, <laughs> souses it up in this turgid, depressing, leaving Las Vegas in Mexico. Finney is, a real stretch for him here, a blackout drunk who used to be the British ambassador. Perhaps pining over their one-night stand from Two for the Road, he's obsessed with his ex, or is it just estranged, wife Jackie Bissett, who, as in the upcoming Dangerous Beauty, is screwing around with every guy in town. There's a lot of back and forth where she seems repentant and wants to come back to him, but there's always some glitch, like when he gets suckered into getting loaded in a whorehouse, and she shows up looking to reconcile while he's drunkenly banging some Mexican whore. In the end, he gets badgered into a machete fight with some local goons who have it in for him and dies. Yay? Anthony Edwards of penis transplant comedy slash British exploiter Percy's Progress appears, as does a Jose Rene Ruiz as a David Rappaport-looking character credited as, quote, The Dwarf. Can you believe this came from the ages of John Huston? Even if you take the list of Adrian Messenger from our Tony Curtis and Frank Sinatra shows, and the Starsky-starring slasher snaker Phobia into account? Boy, Jackie should do a lot of shit movies, huh? I never really liked this. So oh, God, what I, is I, shit? I will be kind and... and not saying anymore. And I think they put it on a criterion, and people are like, oh, yes, critical favor. Oh, my God. Yeah, anyway. It's going to do that. You know, it's <laughs> so if he does several films now that I, I either couldn't find or didn't care, like Forbidden, High Season, La Maison de Jade, and what I actually remember a long time ago, I think it was a bad comedy, scenes from The Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. So do you need to cover any of those? Yeah, I, I saw this a long time ago. Uh, it's a Paul Bartel eating Raoul picture, and it had an interesting cast. Ray Sharkey, Mary Warrenov, Robert Beltran, both were reading, uh, eating Raoul. And I, I remember this being enjoyable and amiable in a particular way where it was like, it didn't hurt my brain. You know, it's that kind of thing. That's kind of my memory of it as well. But again, it was a long time ago. I'm talking early 90s at best. So 1990, speaking of which, Wild Orchid. An aging but still sexy Jackie Bissett helps enliven this surprisingly steamy Zalman King effort. King, best known for the ridiculous billowing curtains, rose petals on the bed, and candles everywhere, softcore cheese of the Red Shoe Diaries, not to mention the stupid and overrated milquetoast BDSM relationship films Nine and a Half Weeks, with the overrated linebacker slash coat rack shouldered Kim, I'm gonna buy myself a town, Basinger, surprised the hell out of me by working something far more indebted to French decadence and erotica like the Emmanuel films and other Just Jakin works like Story of O and even Madame Claude, discussed in our Klaus Kinski and Emmanuel film shows, Berlusconi's Guido Creepax Come to Life Valentina series, or the Joe DiMano-Laura Gemser collaborations all discussed in said Emmanuel show. 
filled with aesthetic shots of Brazil and Rio de Janeiro, inclusive of some of the best carnival footage this side of Black Narcissus. This one stars the blinking you Mr. Carrie Otis, a teenage runaway turned model who famously married her co-star, the abominable Mickey Rourke, only to suit King and Playboy over stoles from her performance here and have Rourke arrested for spousal abuse. If you get a minute, do yourself a favor and look up Joe Queenan's Mickey Rourke for a day. Probably the funniest article among dozens of great ones he contributed to Movie Line magazine, and it was later reprinted in his collection, If You're Talking to Me, Your Career Must Be in Trouble, which nails this guy to a T. I won't ruin it by trying to explain. Seriously, just go find this article and try not to laugh yourself to tears over this overrated, ridiculous, low-life and misogynist boob. These two fools and their tempestuous six-year relationship aside, this one feels very French in the sense of hailing from the literary school inaugurated by such decadent authors as Saad, Pauline Riage, and Emmanuel Larsan, with a dominant male freeing a submissive female to a full range of self-discovery and erotic experience before claiming her as his own ideal femme fatale. The real capper of the piece is where he gets young lawyer Otis to literally whore herself out to what turns out to be the rival attorney in a business deal she's representing one of the parties for. There's some seriously kinky shit going on throughout, like when they share a limo with a troubled couple who work manages to talk into reconciling by getting the fuck in front of fellow limo passengers Otis and himself. Or when Jackie gets Otis to first translate for her, then join her in a menage a trois with a Brazilian local. Before this, Jackie's role was pretty straight-laced as Otis's boss and arranger of the aforementioned real estate deal. But despite some annoying coitus interruptus for dramatic purposes, this scene definitely reminds any doubters that even a middle-aged Jackie could still bring in with the kink appeal. Forget Hallmark card Midwestern eat that naughty horseshit like nine and a half weeks. If you're too scared to try the real deal erotica from France, Italy, and even occasionally Germany, again, check out our Emmanuel show if you doubt. This one should expand your horizons a bit. I did like it. It's not perfect, but considering, I was surprised by how good it was. Yeah, it's it's not bad at all. It, it's it's For what it is, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's actually uh, a step up from those Joe D'Amato things, you know, back in the early 80s before he went full-on hardcore. Uh, in the 2000s, um, oh, Joe Diabato, he, he pioneered this fucking thing. Nobody gives him credit. Zalman King stole it from y'all. But Diamato pioneered this whole... Oh, Diamato, some of those things were so good. We talked that in our Joe Diamato yeah. show. Um, so this is not bad. Of interest is... <laughs> I don't know. This this happened a couple of times. It happened with um, David Carradine and Barbara Hershey and, and uh, Boxcar Bertha. And uh, it happened on this picture where allegedly... Mickey Rourke and Carrie Otis, who were a thing, were going at it so much they decided to fuck on camera, and they, they, they had a tough time editing it. And so they, <laughs> you know, I get it, you know, it's like, wow, this is hot, leave it in. And then, you know, they go to they go to show it to the editors, like, hey, you know, I can't edit it around this. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> they had to cut, 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 chomp a lot. It's pretty steamy. It's pretty bad. And, you know, yeah, Mickey Rourke went down a weird road, but this is not a bad picture. Yeah, and didn't he supposedly do the same thing to Lisa Bonet and Angel Heart? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yes. Guy's a piece of work. So anyway, uh, again, I do recommend that Joe Queen article. It's hilarious. So he did, she did three more movies in the early 90s, Rossini, Rossini, Corrupt Justice, and Les Marmont. But the one I'm going to talk to is 1995's La Ceremonie, which again was nominated Cesar Award for Supporting Actress. Sandrine Bonaire and Isabel Huppert of about 100 films nobody outside of hoity-toity critical circles has ever even heard of, much less sat through, are the new maiden or acidic lesbian friend from the local post office 
who wound up so disgusted with the folks Bonaire works for, as still attractive middle-aged Jackie Bissett, much older-looking hubby Jean-Pierre Cassel of Malpatouille, Buñuel's discreet charm of the bourgeois, and the three and four musketeers films from our Olivia, and their annoying kids that they murder them all. Bonaire gets run over by a car and dies. Hubert walks away smiling. Who gives a shit? Naturally, this steaming hunk of arc-house shit was given widespread accolades because it was a very late entry in the oeuvre of third-rate Nouvelle Vague director Claude Chabrol, whose only film of note was 1968 C.D. Le Biches, but whose penchant for turgid drama was so superior to off-derided fellows like Melville and Clouseau, both of whose careers are filled with entertaining auteurist films, that he, of course, deserves to be spoken of in the same breath as the likes of Buñuel, Antonioni, and Fellini, much less Ferrari, please. Like the later Dangerous Beauty, chances are you've never seen or heard of this one, and it's best to leave things that way. What a piece of shit. Critics are fucked up. Oh, I didn't dislike it as much really? as you did. I didn't enjoy it, but I didn't hate it. You certainly seemed like you disliked it where you lost sleep. So. <laughs> no, I'm just sick of all these things like, oh, look, critically praised, Oscar winning, so great. And they always, always, always suck major ass. My like, God, why am I sitting to this shit? Whereas stuff they're like, oh, this is terrible, you know, two stars on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's like, these are great films, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, they might not be works of art for the ages, but they're entertaining, they're fun to sit through, they're fun to critique, they got interesting actors in them. These things are just shit. It's like watching a Merchant Ivory film, but worse. It's like watching paint dry. (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I do see she was in Domino, which I saw and I enjoyed. It's actually not a bad Mickey Rourke. Kira Knightley, Edgar Ramirez picture. I don't remember her in this. Yeah, I did not even see that one. Oh, she played Domino's mother. Must have been a flashback. That's a <laughs> really fun Tony Scott movie. It's it's. Remember Tony Scott, the really you know Ridley's brother, and and he made some really terrific movies, and he got really sick, and and he he passed rather quickly. But this is one of those flashy biopics about a female bounty hunter. Interesting. Which this movie has to be seen to be believed it was so fucking <laughs> whack. And the he was experimenting with different exposure setting films. So it was just like you're like getting slammed with like, Oh my god, you know what I I feel like I'm drugged. Uh, great cast in that. I just don't remember her, you know, in that movie. There must have been a small part. Actually going back a couple years from that one. Nineteen ninety eight, Dangerous Beauty. You can still have Marco, but not in Whitlock. There's an alternative to marriage. What starts off as a fairly standard female empowerment slash live out your dream scenario with a tomboyish young girl who can wield a rapier and wants to be a pirate quickly turns into a rather backwards gold digger slash feminine wiles to get ahead, make your way to the top on your back diatribe. Supposedly about some famed Italian courtesan nobody's ever heard of. You were a courtesan? One of the best. Pushed into being a whore just like dear old mom and her mother before her, poor Catherine McCormick of no appreciable credits, about the best you can say she showed up in that bloated Mel Gibson crap fest Braveheart, fucks her way up to the top, literally, while the bushy eyebrowed greaseball who dumped her whines about how she's enjoying it. Finally, the Black Plague hits Verona, a proto-maga more popularly known as the Inquisition, blames it on people enjoying sex, and tries to burn her at the stake as a witch, only to throw their hands up in disgust and walk away, when all their leaders, politicians, priests, and noblemen are exposed as Class A perverts. Roll credits. Fred Ward of Cast the Deadly Spell and cult film standby Joanna Cassidy of The Laughing Policeman, Massimo Delamano's Night Child, Stay Hungry from our Arnold Schwarzenegger show, The Glove from our John Saxon show, and Ghosts of Mars from our John Carpenter show also appear, and a very old and tired-looking Jackie Bissett is the matriarch of the family slutocracy. Wow, what a great performance! Heartwarming, uplifting film of the year. Go Feminist Values. 
Holy shit. Was this written by the crowd that used to bamboozle college girls into thinking they were powerful over men stuffing their tits and becoming a stripper back in the 90s? Rosa Versailles, this isn't. What a piece of shit. I've seen this, but I have not seen this in years, so I'd rather not comment. So that's all I bothered with. I mean, she does do things into the 2000s and even, I think she was doing something in 2021, yeah. 2021, Birds of Paradise. But most of these films you've never heard of, and it's probably for good reason. (laughs) Do you see anything in there that uh, piques your interest? No. uh, The Two Jacks, if you want to do that. When did she do The Two Jacks? 2012. Oh, it's not The Two Jakes. Oh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, is that not it's earlier? Not the I thought it was people. in the 80s. Jack Nicholson, yeah. But it, it features Jack's sort of pseudo lookalike Jack Houston. Uh, <laughs> Danny Houston. Any relation to John? Could be. Oh, this is interesting. It looks like an interesting film that I have not seen. The Two Jacks, 1992 Jack, played by Danny Houston. The legendary filmmaker returns to Hollywood after a long absence. Looking to secure finance for his new film, he returns to Tinseltown, encounters a series of adventures. 20 years later, his son, played by Jack Houston, and I guess this, this guy's son, he's probably John Houston's grandson, arrives to make his directorial debut. This sounds like a... Uh, Hey, my dad was really famous. I think we could do something here. <laughs> but no, I didn't see this. So this is a movie I am curious about. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I guess thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Jackie Bissett. Next time, I believe you want to do Eddie Murphy. Yeah, I guess our next show will be Eddie Murphy. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician, would like to join us in here, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. And, of course, we're on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes. You can look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you're particular, the ID is 5534020044. We're also on Spotify and Amazon Podcast. Again, look us up under Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, anything else you want to close out with? No, I mean, uh, of course, you know, thank you for listening. We didn't cover all her films, but we no. tried to cover the key ones. Interesting, relevant ones. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll be back shortly. So, we will see you next time with, yes, of all people, Eddie Murphy. That'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you all. All right, so uh, we'll see you again soon.
Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving Towards Life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, and myself. Discuss the beloved, the Katie, 
your career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Jeepers, creepers, where'd you get those peepers? Jeepers, creepers, where'd you get those eyes? Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, you sound fine. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know it's been dicey lately, but uh, yeah, it sounds clear oh, yeah. so far. Yeah, the, what the hell? The last couple have been good, so. I... Cameo from Dog in the Yard. <laughs> what a day! <laughs> so what happened? Well, I woke up with a cold sinus thing. You know, one of those bad ones where all your teeth hurt. Yes. <laughs> and uh, your jaw hurts, and, you know, it's like, oh my God, and, you know, you know just your nose is running like, fuck. You sound all right, though. And you don't sound sniffly. <laughs> yeah, well, I got the tissues right here. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, uh, you know, I was working, and uh, so I, the ongoing story with the life insurance for my mom. And, uh, oh, God. Yeah. I called one last Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Somebody will get back to you within 72 hours. Well, <clears throat> tomorrow's Wednesday. So I called that one again. I said, what's going on? This was the express claims number. And I... Did the claim with you, and, you know, it's over a month. Look, I'm not hurting for the money, but this is kind of ridiculous. I will call you on Friday. Is this a good number to reach you? I'm like, I'm just sending you a fucking money. And then I called the other one. They said the check went out today. I said, thank you. That's yeah, This is not even a big company like John Hancock or Prudential, you know? I'm like, all right, good. Is there anything else you need? No, it's, it's in the, the check is in the mail. That's fine. <laughs> so, and this is going on for a year. I don't know if you recall, but I, like a year ago, I I always put my garbage out, you know, for, you know, for the garbage, man. Yeah. And there was never anything said like, you know, don't put it out this time or don't put it out that time. I don't know. And I got like this weird ass summons, uh, which I didn't understand. Like, what is this about? You know, put it out too early and it was two o'clock. I mean, when I used to live in my old apartment. These guys used to come three, four o'clock in the afternoon. All right, that's fine. So I thought that was a norm. So it took me forever to find out what the times are, and they're vague. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, they're vague. So um, I'm like, I don't put it out. I, you know, and I told the people downstairs, if you put it out, don't put it out early. So anyway, they canceled the court date multiple times. Yes, there's an actual fucking court date. For this. Excuse me, okay. Then they canceled the virtual court date because of COVID multiple times. And last, the last one I missed because my mom died that week. And I'm not going to remember to do this. So I did the virtual thing, 10 o'clock, right? I'm yeah. looking at a fucking blank Zoom screen for an hour. And I got out and I got in like multiple times. Like, is this thing even working in Jersey City? It's possibly it's not working, right? The guy finally comes on 5 to 11. And I signed on five minutes early just to like make sure, you know, hey, I'm here, you know. The guy comes on 5 to 11, shows me, like, a flag. So his his face isn't even on there. Okay. And your name is Louis Paul, P-A-U-L. Oh, thank you, Mr. Pack. Paul, <laughs> P-A-U-L. <laughs> and this is a reference. Let me look it up. 
Oh yes, garbage. Yes, <laughs> I was. Yeah, I always like felt like saying, "Are you fucking kidding me? We're actually doing this." Yeah, <laughs> really, really. In this day, a fucking parking ticket. I can understand putting out garbage. It's not like it was. It was recycling. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like a a bureau or a television. You know, or a sofa. For fuck's sake, you guys are so hard on for money. But no, I didn't say that. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Obviously. <laughs> Uh, you plead not guilty because I said I was a tenant I, on this block. I didn't know there's a certain time. What time did you put it out? Oh, that's too early. I'm like, yes, sir, but I didn't know what time it was legal to put it out until I looked at the mayor's office online, you know, after I got this. Well, you still have to pay a fine. I'm like, oh, geez, okay. Uh, i tell you what, first-time offense is $75, but what is it normally? 250 for putting Oof. out garbage? Exactly. What the f- <laughs> I can beat the shit out of somebody in the street and, and, and like, be out on $50 bill. I mean, yeah. see how- <laughs> It's true. Oh, and that's the other thing. So, you know, the abandoned house across the way for two years has been abandoned. The owner left, everybody left, and I don't know if the city took it over or if... Some real estate company just Pac-Manned it. Okay. Two weeks ago, uh, they started doing work. I'm like, all right, somebody bought it. So a little over a week and a half ago, this is not the racist show, but all these fucking Indian males moved in there, like yeah. in their 30s, like 10 guys. Wow, yeah, that happens. Yeah. And I'm thinking, and then all these computers, I see all these computer boxes. I'm like, I'm one of these guys pulling, a, you know, like, a, what do you call call center out of that apartment. It's a two-family house, too. So what annoyed me? Why should I care? 2.30 in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, 3.30 in the morning. It, it, it's around that time. About eight of them go outside and smoke and talk like it's the middle of the day. <laughs> so I'm like, <sighs> so my wife heard it. You know, she's really home. She heard it Sunday night. She goes, what the hell is that? And I said, I, said, I told you about that. I said, you know what? I'm so tempted to get to get my uh, sweatpants on and go outside and go across the street and say, hey, you do realize you're waking everybody up? No, no, don't go. Don't go. You don't know. I said, these guys are going to throw some fucking curry in my face? <laughs> you know? But she goes, no, you know, they could steal your stuff when you're not home. You know, they could be vindictive. So, uh, you got a point there. Yeah, that's true, unfortunately. And uh, so I don't know, but uh, they keep the shit up. I'm, I'm just going to go over there and just say, hey, you know, stop waking me the fuck up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's just terrible. It's just, you look out the window and it's like, it's 2.45. And they're all they're like hanging out like it's the middle of the day. They're probably all in IT. You know how that is. Plus they're talking to India. Right. No, they're probably in IT. I think they're on a break. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's why like their shift is over. So there's a, a local community board and I, I posted, and I didn't say what their nationality, because you know, people no, jump yeah, all the fuck all over here, just a bunch of males. So uh, somebody must have been pretty much hip to what I was trying to say, and the guy goes, you ever see that Clint Eastwood movie where he gets the immigrants? Get off my lawn. I said, now wait, you're going to a place I'm not going Exactly to. right. <laughs> No, that's the problem. That's why you can't bring this stuff up even when it's true. It's like, you know, you automatically wind up with that crowd and you piss everybody else off. I'm like, no, that's not what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> right. So I didn't say that, you know, right. but somebody else did because you're insinuating. And I'm like, uh, you're insinuating something. You know. <laughs> how about you? Hi. Oh, how's, how did you do with the shots? 
Oh, yeah, that was fine. I went back to Pfizer, but I got it on, I think it was the second day it was available or something. You know, I was asking my wife before because I kept seeing it on the news, like, oh, yeah, this thing's out. Or, and, of course, nobody said a damn thing. Even the website for, like, the CDC didn't say shit. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And I figured, all right, well, you know, I kept doing these at CVS, so I figured they would send me a text because they usually do for prescriptions or whatever else, and nothing. So I'm like, all right, let's, let me look myself. And I just threw it in as a test of water, see what happens. Automatically comes right up, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's available. I think it was the same day or the one by us. I'm like, Pfft. All right, let's go down. No problem. Got the damn COVID shot. There's no problem there. The only thing was, well, it's flu season, so I'll get that in the flu shot. Well, the trick was, they tell my wife she originally wanted to go for the flu shot. Oh, uh, your thing doesn't cover us anymore. They sent me a note in the mail or something saying we no longer cover doing it at CVS or Walgreens. You got to go to your doctor. Like, get the fuck out of here. So, well, so how much is it? I, mean, I have no idea. It might be like 30 bucks or something. But why should I? Because it was always free. You know, I've done this for over a decade now, even with my old company and everything else. I would just right. go, you know, to there so I wouldn't have to deal with a freaking doctor, take the shot, and that was it. It's like five minutes in route. But I was so pissed off at this. You know, not at them, because what are they going to do? They just got this notice. But at the insurance company, so I go and wrote them a note saying, you know, what the... I mean, I wasn't cursing at them, because, you, know, right. you know, customer service people. But I'm like, you know, what the fuck's going on here? It's like, I've been doing this for, like, over a decade, and I, was like, I have no reason whatsoever to expect I'm going to need to go back to him at all this year. You know, maybe I'll see him next year at some point. But, you know, this on, you know, screw you. And I was like, there's absolutely no reason for this. And thanks for contributing to the public health by removing this for a lot of people. Plus, you know, and like I said, too, doctors, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, make an appointment. Well, well he's never anything for like two months up. It's like, oh, yeah, I got to do some kind of crazy thing. Like, you know, take time off to go see this guy at some weird hour of the day, if you're lucky, four weeks down the road. I just go down here to CVS any fucking time and get a shot. It's no problem. It's like, what the hell are you guys doing? How cheap are you? And I don't wake up. <laughs> I got an email from NYU Langone down by Wall Street because I, I worked there for years and years. You know, and yeah. where I'm at now, Whitehall's not far from there. Okay. Except I don't need to go to the doctor. It's usually like I'm day and working from home. So I'm like, fuck. Mm-hmm. So I get an email from them and say, oh, the, the bi- uh, whatever it's called, bi-evalent, you know, the Moderna Omicron shots available. Yeah. Uh, sign, you know, sign into your church, my chart, which is a pain in the ass. So, so I signed in and I said, look for locations, five in Long Island and two on the Upper East Side. Uh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Five yeah, sure. along out. Okay, I get it. a lot of people in Long Island, but no, yeah. it's crazy. So I said, I said no. I got the last one at CVS, and mm-hmm. so I go on the CVS site, and there you go. Yeah. Except I made a, the one I liked in Edgewater, and I figured I'd kill some time hanging around there. It's not offering it. It's only select sites. Ah. Uh-huh. Yeah, because that was interesting. You yeah. know what it might be, too? If you were trying to get one or the other, Moderna or Pfizer, it's different ones. Because we've got a couple in our area where we are, but yeah. every one offers, okay, I only do Pfizer. I only do Moderna. So they never come up as available whenever you're looking for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> None of the Walgreens are doing near me are doing Moderna. They're all doing Pfizer. I have to get Moderna. I don't want to switch up. Well, they say that it's better for you if you switch up. It's supposed to be like a cross thing. I did that last time. I got a Moderna, even though I was always a Pfizer person. So. Yeah, I don't want to take it. So uh, I made an appointment for uh, North Bergen. Okay. 95th Street. I'm like, all right, I'll take a car there. And I double-checked the appointment, and they actually didn't have it. They thought I was booking, like, the fourth shot. Oh, my God. I got that. So I had to cancel that. And I found one in Hoboken. And that's where you did it? Yeah, that's where I did it. Because yeah. you just remind me of something I totally forgot. Another thing I was pissed off. So I was really steaming when I wrote that letter to these jerks. And, of course, they had no response. Oh, we'll contact you. Yeah, bullshit. When we went down there, my wife's appointment was fine, because I made them both at the same time, right? Mm, yeah. Mine... They're like, oh, you're not on here. I'm like, bullshit. And I didn't say that to her because, you know, it's just some dope work in the counter. 
But I'm like, come on, that's not true. Like, and I showed her the thing on my phone. Is there the appointment? Nope. <laughs> it turns out that somehow, even though my wife was correct in the right time and the right day, mine was the right time a week later. I'm like, fuck uh-huh. this. So I canceled it. First off, my wife's like, okay, can you get in today? Because, you know, we're just there at like 10 in the morning or something stupid. He's like, okay, well, hang on and, you know, we'll, we'll talk to the pharmacist. So he goes around, he's doing orders, he's on the phone. He goes and does my wife's shot, goes back. Another five or ten minutes goes by. And we're like, whatever happened with this? And he's like, no, I can't do it because now all of a sudden a whole bunch of people came in. He's like, there's too many people here. We can't do it. He's like, well, how about sometime today? No, can't do it today. Schedule another time. <laughs> So I took a look while I'm standing there, as soon as he says this, and I'm like, okay, yes, for the next hour, they were now full up. And mm. it was open an hour later. I'm like, fuck this. So I was like, okay, we're going home. We're having, like, brunch or whatever the hell. My wife's going to go off to work. I'll just schedule for when you leave. I'll just leave with you and go back there, which is ridiculous. But And that's what I did. I went back and got this shot. I'm like, wow, this, this whole thing they is so have, fucked up. Yeah, and they do have a limited supply because when I was there, you know, they confirmed I was who I was. And so, you know, can you have a seat? Yeah, sure. And all these, there's uh, a Hoboken and all these, like, I got to go there more. All these Korean girls are coming there. <laughs> And they come, oh, hello, Nancy. Everybody knows Mr. Mr. Good-looking pharmacy guy. He was a good-looking guy. You know, not 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 in a Tom Cruise way, but, you know, he was a good-looking guy. No, no, <laughs> not that way, but, you know, like, I'll admit he was a good-looking guy. For, for a pharmacist, you know? You know, I'm watching all these Korean girls coming in. I'm like, I got to come down to this part of Hoboken. I'll tell you, right before I met my wife, we used to go to this pool hall, me and my buddy Rob. Yeah. And uh, it was filled with Koreans. You know, mostly girls, but sometimes they're their boyfriends or whatever the hell. And yeah. I can tell you, those Koreans are the hardest to pick up. <laughs> I mean, uh, they just have, at least at the time, which is what you're talking about 20 years ago now, plus, they have no interest in going outside of what they know and, you know, the Korean guys, wherever the hell. I don't uh, understand that, what that was about, but yeah. <laughs> now they're all working at Edgewater Massage Parlors. <laughs> and, and special bars. Did you notice there's a thing in Edgewater? No. What? There's three or four bars mm-hmm. they will accept america but it's expensive is this like you know a no panties bar or something like that <laughs> no, 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 no. you go in it's a nice spot but they'll sell you like a bottle of wine for like 200 dollars, or a bottle of spirit you know mm-hmm. real liquor for like 300 dollars, and then you pay a hundred dollars for how many you know one girl and if you got a bunch of guys you could split it wow this is like japan so they sit with you you drink they might offer some small bites Here's the thing. Then it's where you arrange to hang out with the girl afterwards outside this place. It's a kind of <laughs> weird arrangement where they can get away with it. That yeah. is what they call a hostess bar in Japan. You get a mom's yeah. on there running it. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they're, 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 they're Korean spots in, in Edward. Hmm. Anyway, so while I'm sitting there, all these girls are coming in, and the guy goes, Nine, sorry. You know, I'm all booked up. We have a limited supply. And then some old Russian matron chicks come in there and like, Hello, Mr. Pharmacy Guy. And he's like, oh, I'm very sorry, but I'm here. Oh, fuck you. I'm like, people got big balls, especially ladies, got big balls on them, you know? <laughs> I know I don't have an appointment, but I'm here. Can I get this shot? Like, no, you have to go online and, you know, register for the shot. Yeah. You know, he's like, limited supply, but I'm here. I'm like, yeah. But see, I already registered. It was just apparently went to the wrong day for me. So, you know, it was a little different. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's... <laughs> people have balls. Oh, wait. Um, uh, good. Test this. I have to go down my guitar thing. Oh. Did you hear the bell ring? No, no. I did not. What, uh, what brand did you get this time? I thought you were selling some off. I did, but I felt my birthday's coming up. I gotta treat myself. What'd you get, though? The Slash. Les Paul? Uh, the Slash Les Paul made by Epiphone. Okay. It's the most expensive Epiphone there is. Yeah, because Epiphone's usually the cheaper brand. I always get Epiphone. Well, it's made by Gibson. 
you know, yeah. but no, it's it's made. It's yeah. Why do you guys ring the fuck? I hate you know UPS and and the other guys. Yeah. They don't ring a bell, you know. It's like I hope it's not right. from Sweetwater again. I remember the last time I sent you one, it was broken. <laughs> well, that was dude, was that a mandolin or a ukulele? Uh, yeah. No, that was Guitar Center. Oh, okay. All right, let me go get it, and you could test this. Okay. Pretty. It was pretty long. I remember that. Next. Hello? Hello? Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. I pissed off there.